There's a huge 5K in BU this Friday night. Could Woody Kincaid break the world record? What about Aaron Nagus? Hell, Nico Young. Could he go away sub-13? You're going to want to find out. And if you want the instant reaction analysis, you're going to have to be a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member to get it as a podcast. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. You get a second podcast from us every week. Savings and running products, all the Let's Run content, private message board. Oh, an amazing super soft shirt. Like this running shirt, you want to wear it around the house. It's great. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. Use code SC25 to save 25% off your first year. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The USATF Cross Country Championships are in the books and Kupatia and Wayne Kaladi are your national championship champions. Kaladi will be going to Serbia, Kupatia most likely will not. Looks like he's got some indoor races coming up. Speaking of indoors, starting to heat up people. We've got the first big... BU meet of 2024 this weekend, Friday and Saturday in Boston. We'll have boots on the ground coverage there. Could we see a collegiate record? Could we see an American record? Could we see a world record? These fields are stacked, people. We've got Nico Young, Yara Nagus, Abdi Noor, Woody Kincaid, Joe Klecker. It's going to be really fast. It's going to be exciting. We might make some predictions there. And then the Olympic Marathon Trials, they're only 11 days away. They've really snuck up on us. We are going to have some fun. We're going to draft teams. Jonathan, Robert, and Weldon try to prove who knows the most about marathon running and put those teams to the test. Makes spice up an already spicy Olympic Marathon Trials. So we'll have some fun with that. And then at the end of the show, great interview with... Alex Gibby. He is the distance coach at Harvard University. He's the coach of Graham Blanks. He's the coach of Maya Ramsden, who's the NCAA women's 1500 meter champion. And we're going to talk about his training philosophy. It's a little different than uh, traditional, but Gibby gets into it. And we talk about the 2024 track season, how he's approaching that with Graham Blanks, and also how he beat Weldon at the 1997 pen relays so great episode in store for you guys this is jonathan gold i'm joined by robin and weldon johnson co-hosts co-founders of letsrun.com robert riding high his baltimore ravens are hosting the afc championship game on sunday for the first time in team history so i'm sure you're going to be in a good mood today indeed i don't think i've ever been more excited john so many things to be excited about. There's only, they always say there's only one first time. And I can't wait till Friday night. It's finally going to happen for me. It's been a long wait. Waited my whole life for this. Actually, so has every guy in this podcast. The first and only time I will imagine in my lifetime see a 343 American miler make their pro 5,000 meter debut. That doesn't come along every day. That's like a once in a lifetime type thing. So 
Excited about that. The collegiate record go to Nico Young or Kai Robinson. Got my Ravens playoff game on Sunday. And it's also just great. We just finished that Alex Gabe interview. It was fantastic. I wish we talked about some of the stuff we had off air. Like he pulled, he once pulled a kid off the track his freshman year at Harvard because he was about to run 16 minutes in the 5,000. Thought he was too talented to let him do that. And he ended up running 2744 before he graduated. So I think Weld and I are the only people that get along with everybody in the sport. You guys get along with everybody? I'm not sure about that. I get along with Coach Gibby of Harvard, Coach Vigilani of Princeton. Well, then I were hanging out with Coaching Royals. But by the way, people people that started the thread about Sean Brosnan at George Mason University, people were wondering if he was at Georgetown. Uh, well, then I were hanging out with him on Saturday night. He was at Scott Anderson's 50th birthday party. So calm down, people. Stop the false rumors. Just enjoying a little birthday festivities. All right, well, then we'll welcome you in. Do you remember anything about the 1997 Penn Relays 10K? I don't remember anything about the 1997 10K, you said? So I was at Texas by then. Yeah, I said 1997. Well, I didn't break 30 minutes. But, wow. I mean, this, should I take this as the ultimate compliment? Alex Gibby yes, remembers racing me? Like, I was like Gabriel Selassie to him? I mean, like... Wow, I guess as a great coach, he saw a guy in like the some shit 10,000 and said, Wow, this guy has future, has greatness all over. If he just had a great coach, so is, is this where we're going with this story? Pretty much, I think it was the highlight of the interview for me to realize you've been living rent free in his head for I was gonna say 27 years, but it's not really, it's only like 23. When once you got good and had a breakthrough and got fourth at USA's, he's like, I think I used to beat that guy. And then when I was coaching at Cornell, I guess I started at Cornell the next year. He remembered racing you. So it's a cool story, y'all. And you ran your collegiate PR 3006. I got the party stories, John, in the interview wrong. That was not the year. I just looked it up that we went to Atlantic City after the race. This was the year, though, that Texas Weldon ran a fifth year at the University of Texas and was, was headed back on an early morning plane. And I was stumbling back. I was going to stay in his hotel room. Once they left at like 6 a.m., I was going to sleep in his hotel room. I think I just stayed up all night long. And the famed sprint coach, Dan Paff, was in the lobby when I, he was getting ready to leave and I was coming in. He goes, wow, you're a lot different than your brother. Weldon was living the pure life, training hard, and I was the degenerate. Well, one of the most impressive things Gibby said was before the interview when he said he runs pretty much every day still. And he is about to hit an age milestone that you guys both hit last year and i'm just gonna say if i was gonna bet on one person who's gonna break three in the marathon anytime soon it would be alex gibby it wouldn't be robert johnson so if he but if he can get back out there and log those miles i don't see and coach graham blanks and two distant squads at harvard i don't see why you can't do it as well robert so there should be hope for you enough talk about my past let's talk about the very recent past saturday afternoon just a few hours south of here in Richmond, United States Cross Country Championships were held. About an hour or two before this race went off, the men's race went off, I had an epiphany. When I have an epiphany that's related to running, where do I go? I go immediately to the let'srun.com message board and I post it on there. 
Because, you know, it is a World Cross country year, which makes USA Cross somewhat important. But since we don't even know who's going to World Cross, some guys turn down their spots. Normally, we don't read too much in this meeting. It's a shame that all the pros don't take cross country more seriously. Hopefully, when they move the schedule up, maybe before into a track, they can do both. Well, I'm convinced. I think this Olympic thing is an issue. Having it in an Olympic year, we wish it wasn't, but so many people are focused on the Olympics. Many of the top pros are going to skip it. Sounds like Jacob Kiblimo, the defending champion, may not even run this year in Serbia. I don't know if it's focused, if he's banged up or if it's focused. I don't think he's banged up. He just ran 2640-something on the roads in Valencia. I think he's focused on the Olympics too, which is a, so it's a shame. We really should have asked Co. why do they always have it in the Olympic year? It doesn't make sense to me. Put it in another year. The odd years, not the even years. Anyways, I just thought to myself, okay, well, we were very excited to hear that Cooper Turner and Cole Hawker were running. I mean, they were training nearby at Virginia Tech. And I thought, okay, we don't want to read too much in these results, but if Cooper Turner doesn't beat Cole Hawker, it's over for him. I mean, not over. Obviously, he's got a Nike contract. He can try out for the Olympics. But this guy's got to be, but he's got to beat Cole Ticker, Cole Hawker at a 10K cross country because Cole Hawker is faster than Cooper Tier. And if he's also got better endurance, then Cooper Tier's hope of being a major U.S. player, a guy that could somehow dream of a medal on the world scene is over. And I was pleased to... Come back to the website. John, you wrote an excellent recap. Not only did Cooper Tier beat Cole Hawker, he beat everybody else in this race. He beat Hawker by a ton. You know, it wasn't the the you know the most amazing field ever, but very good win for him. Pleased for him. We'll see what happens. I mean, the 5,000 is stacked. There's a big threat on the message board. Can he make the team in the five? Someone's picking him to make the team in the five. I still think he's going to try in the 15. But good win for him, and then Wayne Kawada absolutely dominated the women's race. Yeah, I was very impressed by Kubatia. I expected Wayne Kawada to win by a lot, and she did. She totally dominated. So that's impressive, but expected. Kubatia, I mean, Weldon and I were talking on the Friday 15. He's like, do you even expect him to run with the front pack? I'm like, yeah, it's Kubatia. Like, he's not going to just show up to this thing and jog it. You know, if he's running this race, he's good enough to be near the front. I didn't know if he'd win. I think Cooper didn't even know exactly where his fitness was at, which is why he was doing this in part to see how training's been going. I think training's been going very well. Like you said, Robert, it wasn't the deepest field, but Tia looked totally in control. He was with the leaders throughout, and then Morgan Pearson made a move to shake things up. I was impressed by him as well, the Olympic triathlete who will be going back to the Olympics for the second time this summer in a triathlon, former Colorado cross-country runner. Pearson made the move to shake up the pack with 2K to go. Tia was the only guy who goes with him to look to totally control. And then with 1K to go, Tia just eases past him, blows him away, ends up winning handily, never challenged. I thought it was very encouraging for where Tier is at at this point in the season. It's still early. He says he's going to focus on track this winter and not cross country, so he won't be a world cross country. But yeah, I think if you're Tier, you're like, all right, step one complete, my first win and my first race post Bowerman. You know, things are in a good spot right now. But I do, I want to give a shout out to Morgan Pearson as well. 
I didn't mention him in the Let's Run preview. I wasn't really sure what he was going to be doing because he hasn't had that many running-only races recently. He went out there. He made the race, as David Monty said, and he made the team. He won't be running at World Cross because he's focused on the Olympic triathlon, but I was very impressed with the guy who's not a full-time runner but does have some notable cross-country achievements in the past. For him to go out there against some of the best distance runners in the U.S. and more than hold his own, I, he beat the reigning champion, Emmanuel Bohr, by 11 seconds. So Morgan Pearson uh, on some kudos as well out there on Saturday. But did you guys notice who was second overall and therefore will be leading Team USA on the men's side? Future 50 World Championship medalist, Anthony Rotich. Thank you. Thank you, John. John, do you want to explain the inside joke to people who aren't long-time listeners? Well, Robert is, as you know, a big believer in Kenyan-born American runners and Anthony Rotich was a collegiate star at UTEP, three NCAA steeple titles, an NCAA title in the mile in 2014. And when he started running as an American, Robert was like, oh my God, this guy, he's insane. He's so much more talented than all these other guys. Like this is a guy he might. And then somehow you ended up suggesting he might medal one day in the 1500 meters. And I was like, Robert, that's one of the most harebrained predictions you've ever made. So I don't let you live that one down, but Anthony Rotich has won. He won this race in 2020, and now he's going to be leading the way for Team USA in Serbia as well. So, yeah, he's made some teams. John, it's a good run by Cooper and Anthony. And John, on the Friday 15, if you want the second podcast every week, you got to be a Supporters Club member. Join today, letsrun.com slash subscribe. I was going to say, no way in hell does Cooper, Tier, Cole Hawker have a chance. And then you sort of said your spiel, like, yeah, they got a chance. And I sort of softened what I really wanted to say. And I was like, okay, I guess they're not racing Grant Fisher in their prime. But I think it's too long for them. So that, that still sort of holds up. But if you said, hey, could Cooper Tier one-off beat Anthony Rotich or some triathlete in, in, in a cross-country race, I would say yes. I'm not trying to diminish it, but... Yeah, this doesn't mean he's making a team this summer, but... It's a good start, and I'm very excited to see what he's going to do in the two-mile at Milrose a couple weeks from now because he's going to get a real test with Grant Fisher in there, Josh Kerr, and according to David Woods, Cole Hawker is also going to be running that race because they just came out with the Wanna Make a Mile full field uh, for Milrose. Cole Hawker is not in that one, but David Woods, who's the – former Indy star reporter plugged in with all things, Indiana running. He says Colt Hawker skipping mile at Milrose and instead will race two mile. So that's going to be, I'm even more excited for that race. You get Hawker and Tia and against Grant Fisher and Josh Kerr and the rest of the stack field. This is great. The mile is going to be a world record attempt by yard niggas. Or as we, I think we guaranteed it will be a world record by yard niggas. And the two mile, I mean, you got one of the better matchups we've had in indoors in ages. Yeah. I actually, we for all the stick we give people for not taking indoors seriously and not running indoors, like Milrose this year is loaded and has been the last couple of years, honestly. But then 
here's what I'm excited about. I was reaching out to Ray Flynn, who is Cole Hawker's agent. I said, would he run well cross country if he makes the team? And he's like, no, I don't think so. But he's focused on indoor track. And then I said, all right, so would he you know, run world indoors? And he said, yeah, he's aiming for world indoors. So Cole Hawker is aiming for world indoors. Kubatia might be. And Yara Nagus told Sidious Mag this week, or sorry, Dathan Ritzenhain told Sidious Mag, that Yara Nagus is planning on running world indoors if he makes the team as well. So you're not going to have Jake Whiteman or Jakob Ingebrigtsen. We might have Josh Kerr, but if he runs, it's also possible he just does the 3K. I mean... If the U.S. is sending Cole Hawker and Yara Nagus, who were both in the top seven at Worlds in the 1500 last year, not only could they not, they might be able to both medal, they could go one, two. Am I getting too carried away here? Like, they're two of the best athletes in the world who are trying to run this meet. I, I think it's time to start getting excited that, one, they want to go to Serbia, and two, they could really do some damage there. Or, sorry, want to go to Glasgow. That's where well indoors is this year. I think you should be excited, although it's a little depressing that we have to be excited that someone's actually going to run a world indoor championship instead of just skip out to get ready for Zurich. That's a joke, people. But, you know, Jakob assumes he's running world indoors and has to issue a statement because everyone knows he shows up for all the championships. These other jokers show up maybe once a year normally. But, yeah, you're getting ahead of yourself. I mean, I'm not impressed with Hawker's fitness. He's losing to Drew Hunter right now. Cross country, it's 10k. 10k cross country. I'm not that worried. Like he has to be ready for a 1500 in the first weekend of March. I'll grant him some. I know that's only. This is a Ross Buster, but it's what only six weeks away. It's March 1st, I think. Second, third. I'll be there hopefully. So there was a, a, a shocking result in the women's race that we haven't gotten to. I guess we like to start with the positivity. Please explain it. The women's race was so shallow, I find it hard to believe there were really any shocking results in there. What, what did you have in mind? Well, I'm only a casual fan. I, I, you know, I don't have time to follow the sport daily. So well, you know, once a month, I, I head over to the World Athletics website and take a look at their world rankings to see who's doing well in America. And I saw that American Katie Izzo is the top cross-country runner in the in land, ranked 12th in the country, which me, in the, the world. world. She failed to make the team. She was only eighth. I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, folks. It actually exposes Katie did get to go to World last year, but she was six, so she got it with someone else to climb their spot. Oh, the top six make it. Oh, six, okay. But eighth this year. I'm just being sarcastic because look, props to her. I think it's in case you're not a following the world rankings. World Athletics has a cross-country ranking that, look, we get it. The rankings are, I think, in general for track, a good thing. Actually, when I'm at Worlds watching and there's some, like, sprint event, it's like the fourth heat of something, and they're doing the introductions, and I'm working on my computer, and I don't know what's going on. I just look up to say, okay, who's in this heat? I look up the scoreboard, and they have the world rankings, and I'm like, okay, the two best people are lanes four and eight. But in cross country, it doesn't really work because it's just based on the meat and there's no time and there's no factors of like what the quality is. So she's gained the system to try to get a, a very high ranking because that could give you the 10,000 standard, 
which only one American has right now, which could put her into the Olympics. So she's got a lot of points by running these obscure races in, in Spain. And I'm really hoping that Wayne Colati goes to Europe. I think there's a meet in February. She can pick up some points because she deserves to be rewarded for doing U.S. Cross, World Cross. If she could pick up the points, that would be a cool way for her to get into the, the Olympic standard as well. Yeah, I was saying the scoring system for these World Athletics Cross Country meets is kind of messed up because you get the same amount of points for finishing 12th at the Sound Running Cross Champs in November that you do for winning USA Cross. And obviously winning USA Cross is a lot more difficult. So, but Katie Izzo, you could say, oh, she's gaming the system, which I don't really have any problem with. Or you can say she's doing what World Athletics wanted athletes to do when they instituted this system, which is run more cross-country races. They said, we're going to give eight spots in the Olympic final to people who run a lot of cross-country races. And I think their aim there was make these cross-country races matter more, get more people running them. Hasn't really taken off in the US, in part because the vast majority of these races are in Europe. Seemingly, like, half of them are in Spain for some reason. But... Katie Izzo decided, hey, I'm going to go over to Spain. I'll run a few races. Uh, Spain's a great country. You know, get a nice trip out there as well. And now she's in position to make the Olympics at the moment. Things can change, but yeah, she might not be going to World XC. But as it stands, she is has one of those spots for the Olympics in the 10,000. Robert, the other thing I thought you were going to bring up as like a shocker was Ali Ostrander. Because I don't, again, I don't view it as a huge shock given her talent level. We knew... She was an NXN champion in high school. She was a runner-up at NCAA Cross as a true freshman. But she's had some you know, issues, obviously, with injury, with uh, her public battle with uh, an eating disorder. And I believe she's unsponsored now. She, had a, you know, she was with Brooks, and then she stepped back, and then she had a sponsorship with Normal, and then it sounds like this has ended. So she shows up. I saw that in an Instagram post, her parents flew out from Alaska, to watch this race, which I thought was very cool. And she got to reward them by making the team. So Ali Ostrander, who, oh, the other thing is she served a four-month suspension last summer. She said she was from acne medication. She didn't get a TUE for it. So she's coming back from that as well. But five years after making Worlds in the steeplechase, she's on the Worlds team for cross-country. She finished fourth overall. I think it's a great story. I know there's a lot of people that have worked really hard, I mean, including her, to try to get her right. So congratulations to her. The road to recovery continues. All right, so that's USA Cross. Robert, I know you have a little bit of a time crunch this week, so I want to get to this before you head out, and that's our Olympic marathon trials draft. No, 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 no. We got to get to the 5K first. Okay. Yes, a 5K where there is very little, well, I guess it's it's not little at stake, it's Olympic standards for stuff, but you want to talk about a time trial instead of like the greatest marathon in the US. Yes. I mean, possible world record, John. We say we need more people to race and time trials are kind of boring, but to me, the first race of the season on the track is massive. 
it's the only time you, you sort of are, it, it, there's a lot of mystery as a fan. Like, are they ahead of where they were last year? Are they going to make a breakthrough? Are they going to take a step back? And it's rare to, I mean, everyone's going to be you this weekend. You beat the, is it Terrier this weekend, John? The John Thomas Terrier Classic. And this men's 5,000 is absolutely loaded. I mean, Mario Garcimo, Romo, Ben Flanagan, Dylan Jacobs, Woody Kincaid, Klecker, McDonald, Nerd, you, Quacks, Rays, Kai Robinson, Nico Young, and Yared Nagus. And look, Yared Nagus just finished one of the greatest seasons in U.S. history. I mean, I don't know, despite the lack of a medal. American record in the indoor 3,000, outdoor mile, 1,500, according to me at least. And now he's going to open up on the same track a year later from when he just shocked us last year when he ran. Last year, John probably was mocking me for saying, oh, we're going to go see what the goose is. And then the goose ran an American record in 3,000. It wasn't you I was mocking. It was uh, Sam Parsons on Twitter. He had some tweet like saying, Oh, look out for that American record. I'm like, come on, this race is being paced for like 734. You think Nagoose is just going to come out and run like 728 in his first race? Yeah, right. And then he did that and was just at the same level the entire rest of the season. I don't remember you making that prediction, Robert, but Sam Parsons did. I don't, but behind me on the screen, I have a picture of Nagoose celebrating his American record. It was the same meet that Kincaid set the American record in the 5,000? So... I just think it's cool. I think it's a good move by Ritzenheim and the OAC to put Nagus in a different event. So you know, there's a tendency to compare yourself. I think the 5,000 is probably a little bit uncomfortable. His PB is like 1340. And, you know, I wrote it in the week that was. By the way, it's back after its winter hiatus. Check it out on the homepage. I, I was like, nothing really would stun me in this race. And then I was talking to you, John, about it. And I was like, well, what would stun me? I'm like, would an American record stun me for Yared Nagus? That'd be sub-1251. I was like, I mean, I don't think he's going to do that. But no, it wouldn't stun me. I mean, Jakob Ingebrigtsen can run 1251, maybe not January 23rd. And then you brought it up, John. Well, I was like, look, the American record is only two seconds slower than the world record. The world record is 1249.60. I think there are guys in this race. This is an almost ideal situation. It's BU. It's the fastest indoor track in the world. You're going to have good pacemaking. You're going to have good competition. Now, some of them sounds like are just going for the Olympic standard of 1305. But if you've got people in there who really want to rip like we saw last year Woody Kincaid and Joe Klecker they were both like we're not just going for the the world standard we want to go sub 13 run really fast and they slammed it home at the end and actually even got you know they got the American record so if you have someone in this race who really is trying to run like 1250 1249 it could happen or even if someone's trying to run 1253 and then you get someone like Nagus could just be like, all right, I'll follow them and then just pick it up at the end. Now, that's the question to me because when you are talking about a world record like this, you do need someone pushing the pace in the fourth kilometer once the pacer is out. But I think there's the talent in this race for it to happen. Would I be shocked if a guy who's run 343 in the mile can run 1249 for 5,000? Not at all. But 
I think I'm going to hesitate in predicting it happens just because you do need someone really trying to run that fast. I'm shocked you guys are giving this race to him. I think he's going to get beat. I bet most likely he doesn't break 13 minutes. Well, I'm not giving the race to him. He, I'm saying there's a lot of talent in it. There, I'm not saying, like, I think there are multiple guys in this race who could break the indoor world record. Uh, like, would it shock me if Woody Kincaid has run 12.51? Like, could he be in two seconds better shape than he was last year? Could be. Abdihamid Noor. Would it shock me if Abdihamid Noor runs 12.49 like this season outdoors? No. But who? I don't know what kind of shape these guys are in. So I'm not handing the race to Nagus. I think it's actually going to be really exciting because just like Robert said, you've got a lot of talented guys in this field and we don't know where all of them are at right now, except for Nico Young. We know Nico Young just ripped a 357 at 7,000 feet. So he's very fast and Robert made the case for why he thinks the collegiate record and perhaps sub-13 will go down. The collegiate record is sub is 13.03 by Graham Blanks, but his logic was like, look, Nico Young probably already has an NCAA qualifier. He ran 13.22 at BU in December. Why would he fly all the way out here again? Or would be to go for probably the Olympic standard first, 13.05, and then collegiate record second, 13.03, and sub-13 third. I don't think there's multiple. I mean, well, I guess there are multiple. There's not a lot of people who break the world record here. Kincaid, maybe Nur, Nagus. That's three. That's multiple. Yeah. I'm ex- also very excited to see Nur. I mean, he barely raced last year. Remember, he didn't do an indoor season at all. And then he started up running 1500s, 339, 338. Then he ran 1305. Then he won USAs and went to Worlds and was 12. That was it. And he was a DNF of the road champ. So he barely raced. This guy's a, a big talent. Let's see where he's at. Kai Robinson is big. I, I fully expect the collegiate record to go. Between, I mean, young... 357 and Flagstaff? That's ridiculous. So, Grant Blanks, I hope you enjoyed your collegiate record. It lasted 55 days. But in terms of the Nagus expectations, I don't want to say wimp out, but uh, I still have that memory of them, of him going for it in cross country his final year when he came back for the team to try to win the team title and he blew up. I know this is a track and it's 5,000. It's kind of controlled. But I'm with Weldon. I'm going to say, why am I doubting this guy? Well, did you guys see Yard Goose on his Instagram story? You probably didn't see this. I'm not a huge Instagram guy either, but I, I thought this was amusing. He had a post because he was talking, he saw a picture of the entry list and he had this picture and he put a bunch of captions on it. And one of them was, you know, he was listed as the first guy in the entries. So he said, they really acted like I'm the headliner when I probably have the slowest 5K PR in the field. Like, yes, I'm fast, but geez. I'm like, dude, you better get used to this. Like, you're a 343 miler now, number four all time. You just barely lost to Jakob. You've won multiple Diamond Leagues. Like, you're going to be the headliner in pretty much any race you enter on US soil. So even if it's not your event. But yeah, we got to remember, we've got some of the best guys in the United States. We've also got other people like Mario Garcia Romo. He's a miler stepping up. George Mills, miler stepping up. George Mills was third in the Diamond League 1500 fi- Diamond League mile final last year. He's a 347 miler. Mario Garcia Romo has run 
330, you know, was sixth at Worlds last year. These guys are total studs as well. So, yeah, oh, it's going to be very fast. It's going to be fun. And I think the other thing is, I don't know how this talent is going to get divided. It's such a stacked field that well, it sounds like they might be trying to create two equal races as opposed to one where you've got no. all of the best guys in one of them. I can see them doing that, but who's paying for the rabbits? Who's going to be rabbiting? That was the thing in the December meet. It was perfect. But do you remember a couple of years ago when Woody Kincaid, we thought it was crazy. Like he ran 13.05 in the B heat, won it. And then the A heat was like 1250. The winning time was like 1252 and 1251 the last two years. Right, we had American record both of the last two years. Fisher, I think the the Fisher American record, which was the one you're referring to when Woody ran thirteen oh five in the B heat, that was the Valentine Invitational. But yeah, it was BU the winter of twenty twenty two. And that's the thing: if you're going to go for the real time and the, and the records, that's a different game. I thought it was crazy, but like that's a different pacing. Like if you want to get the standard, the Olympic standard, like you pace it out for thirteen ten and then kick. If you want to go in the low 1250s, it's a different ball game. You need to be on 13-minute pace the whole way at a minimum. Yeah. That's why, you know, it's tempting, and we I, I'm guilty of doing this. You say, hey, it was 1251 last year. The field's better. Maybe some of these guys are fitter. You could see it 1249. What's to stop it? And then you would say, well, yeah, but maybe the aims of who, the athletes who are running are different, and they're not trying to run that time. They're just trying to run the Olympic standard. So. And if they do get it and Clucker does all the work, they need to pay him the world record bonus or at least half of it because the dude made the race last year. But uh, for Nagus, I was thinking, okay, what can he do? I'm like, well, Centrowitz, I mean, he's an Olympic champion in the 1500. He ran 13 flat. I think Nagus is is a is better cross-country runner than Centro. So I, I do think he can break 13. I'm going to say like – I'm not going to – I'm going to say that – I'm going to predict that he doesn't win it. But I hope that I'm wrong, and this guy's just like Ingebrigtsen. But and the let's run polls on the in my, in my week that was, um, 16% say American record, 49% say between 1251 and 13 flat, 30% say over between 13 and 1310. I had the same poll about Nico Young, and everyone split. One third say sub 13, one third say between 13 and 1303, which would be still be a collegiate record, and then basically 30% say over 1303. So expectations are high. It should be good. The big meet next weekend will be the big meet, big race next weekend. will be the Olympic marathon trials. Um, good news guys. Uh, apparently my son's birthday party has been canceled or postponed. So it looks like I should be able to make it. You'll be in Orlando. Or do you want me to cover it remotely? So you no, no, I, I want remote. you in Orlando. You can be at my birthday party because my birthday is the day of the trials. What? Yeah, I've, I've said this multiple times on the podcast the last few months. I think you guys just ignore it, but it's going to be a huge weekend. Uh, we're going to be watching the trials like the average non-running fans. We'll be watching on tape delay at NBC at noon because Brighton versus Crystal Palace is at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So that will take priority. Kidding, kidding, people. But really, they couldn't have... This is the second straight Olympic trials marathon where Brighton versus Crystal Palace is on the same day. Except last time it was a noon start. We could watch the game beforehand. This time it's the same exact time. So thank you, Premier League schedulers, for doing that. But we will be in Orlando and we'll be focused on the trials. What are the odds of that, John? We, we, we both back obscure English soccer teams. 
they have this weird rivalry and they play at the the game st- they start at the exact same time. What other sporting events started Saturday at 10 a.m. in the U.S.? Nothing. Damn you, Sarah Hall. I, I blame you. I'm you're responsible for this. Okay, but well, we're gonna have a draft. I only have to go in nine minutes, so. John got this. Apparently other podcast hosts make drafts and sports. I don't really get it, but John wants us to pick four. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the idea and where I came, got it from. So I listened to this coffee club podcast last week and they picked track meets that they liked. So they did a draft of that, but this gimmick no. has been along around for a long time in podcasting. I think of it as, uh, from originating from pardon my take, they did a Mount Rushmore of, insert subject and each of their hosts will pick four items in that category and then you rank them so it's kind of a fun way to discuss topics and that sort of thing and we'll try to do it in 10 minutes because robert has to leave but my thinking was we each pick a team of olympic trials marathoners and then we just score it out cross-country style at the trials and i was going to propose we each pick four athletes and three score but it sounds like you want us all to pick full olympic teams so six men six women i don't think we're gonna have sorry three men three women for a total of 18 athletes i don't think we're gonna have time for that guys robert are you able to stick around for that or do we need to just do smaller rosters probably smaller rosters all right so here's how it'll work we each get four athletes the top three from the trials next weekend, that'll be our scoring teams. And you just do it cross-country style. Add the individual places together, top three, that's your team. So I haven't even thought how we're going to do this draft order. I don't really care. Do you got, anyone have a preference to pick up number one overall? Yes, I have a random number generator on my computer. Who? Who? Okay, this is for you, John. I'm going to push the button. There's no way to prove them. Now. Okay, okay. I trust you. I trust you. And, and then if it... it well, then we'll go next, but he can't have the same number, obviously. So, John, you're first? Yep. You're first. John. Okay, I'm John first overall. First pick. Oh, that's not right. I'm upset about that. This is for Weldon. He's two. God damn it. I'm screwed. And so you're third. Okay. Do we have a list? Are y'all, are y'all putting down the names so that I can? I, I will keep track of this. I'll let you know who's been selected. Um, all right. First overall pick. Oh, man, I didn't really want this because we're going to do it snake style. So if you get the first pick then you don't pick again until number six so robert you're gonna get three and four you're gonna get some nice depth opportunities there like i'm saying who do i think is the most likely out of every person in the field to make to to win the trials basically it's a lot of pressure what are we doing here we're doing it combined so you know if you have the people who get first in the men's race and first in the second women's race that's a total you know you get one point for each of them so this is easy for me who I'd be picking number one. I don't think it's easy. It's a lot of weight on this, but I'm picking Betsy Sina. I, I think I feel really confident about where she's at right now. I think she just won Sydney. Her training's going well. I, Betsy Sina is my pick. I don't want to say too much because Walden's about to pick. Wait, what happens if they DNF? Uh, ooh, well, if you look, if you don't have enough to, it's like a cross country thing. If you don't have enough to score a team, we're going to, you, you finish. Lost. The team is three. Your top the team three is three. Finishers? Yeah. Oh. 
Well, then you're I up. Not a, but I, I think Cena's not a bad pick, but I think she's more likely to DNF than somebody else. Well, not to me suggest that Robert's picking... I think he's going with Sisson. If you don't take know, Sisson, do I, he's going to take a... Do I steal Sisson? I mean, the men's side's more competitive. There's no way around it. There's a little more depth. So they go for Sisson because that's like a pretty much guaranteed top three or just try to pick the men's winner. She could lose. Oh, man. I'm going to give Robert his pick. Do I think he's going to win, though? No. Maybe. I think somebody's going to sit on Connor Mance and I'll kick him. Screw it. Connor Mance. Oh, damn it. That was who you wanted, Robert? Yes. I'm not sure he's going to win, but I feel like he's rock solid. I think he is the most likely guy in the men's race to make it, if I had to say one guy. So I agree with you. I think it's a good pick. Well, then, Robert, you got you get two picks in a row now. I'm going to go with Emma Bates and Jenny Simpson. <laughs> okay. It's a joke, people. That's I feel bad making a joke. Someone's been spent the night. I'm gonna go with Emily Sisson. To our podcast listeners at home, we cut out silence here because you guys just don't want like thirty seconds or more of silence in the podcast. Jesus. Robert, can we get your thought process right here? Because you're not going to have, we're going to have a big gap between your next pick. So you got yeah. this is a decisive one. Well, it could make or break I, I, the team. I, I, I'm trying to come up with someone who I think is like a lock. I'm not necessarily trying to just even get second or third. I just want someone who's not going to finish like seventh or drop out. Really decimate me. I'm a little bit worried about Rupp. I mean, I, I've got some wild card picks. If we have, can we have some long shot picks? Like, I mean, Paul. Well, Chirino. if we want to expand the team to five, we can do that. But I, I have my Bud Lars or long shot. I can't even say it right now because well, then this guy's such. I mean, I just, I really want this guy, but I can't pick him now. Obviously, I've already publicly said that no old person is going to make the team. So that would rule out. But by the way, there's a great Instagram post saying Sarah Hall hasn't missed a day of training in five months or something. So. You've also said Scott Farble won't make the team, so I don't I, think you're going to pick sure, him. I can't pick him. Um, Come on, Robert. I know who you want to pick here. Just get it over with. Come on. Can make you, the pick. Can you give me a hint? I mean, I do hate American-born runners normally, so help me out, John. Who, who do you think I want to pick? Uh, actually, maybe, maybe you won't pick this person, and I can keep them for myself. But I'm next, John. The first pick may not be that great of an advantage. I guess you get to go back to back here in a second. I don't think it is. I want it to be where Robert is. But Robert's, come on, man. You gotta, you gotta go soon. Make a pick here. Shit, I'll get off the pot. I'm really, I'm really tempted to pick Alfie Tulemek. I mean, I think her talent level's through the roof. But I'm gonna go. God, I can't even say this. Despise this guy for most of his career, but when you see that when you see the aging greats trying to hang on, it's just inspirational, and that's what I am—an aging great, Galen Rupp. That was the guy I thought you should take, Robert. So Galen Rupp is off the board. Weldon, you're up. I mean, so if they, if they drop out, it's game changer. I mean, if they drop out, they don't count. If you have two DNFs, you lose. 
put in some media requests for Sarah Hall. If she replay, write her answers back here and have some insider information. I've spent the last probably 30 minutes for this podcast examining Molly Seidel's Instagram posts, trying to zoom in and see what the letter from KT Tape said to her. I, I think now it says, keep breaking records and blooming which would, might indicate she is healthy. And other people were viewing these flowers as condolence flowers that she was out of the trials. Guys, it's officially Olympics trial season. We've got Weldon Johnson on Instagram trying to decipher card captions on a f- flower bouquet. Did Robert just take Dulmuk? No, Robert took Galen Rupp. But if you've already made a team, you're more likely to drop. And Sarah Hall's dropped, I think, the last... Two Olympic trials. He took Rupp. Ooh, somebody like Fiona O'Keefe. It's a debut. It's risky. Ooh, Sarah Vaughn. We'll be consistent. Uh, this guy might be able to get in there as my Budweiser long shot. My God, you guys oh, take whoa. a long time to pick. Come on. Whoa. Robert has to I leave. A- whoa, I, I just looked up. Sam Chalinga, he ran 20th place at Houston Marathon. I almost picked him. Absolutely not. Okay, he's off completely. I almost embarrassed myself here with that pick. My apologies, Sam, if you make the team. Um, Clayton Young will be very consistent. You know that. He's run 208. I, I can't go with the two training partners. Ooh, Zach Panning. What the hell, Zach Panning? Hey, John, can you recap the, the first five picks so far, please? Yeah, first five picks. I picked Betsy Siner first overall. Second, Connor Mance to Weldon. Robert had third and fourth picks, Emily Sisson and Galen Rupp. Now Weldon is taking forever to make his fifth pick overall. Oh, my God. Zach Panning. Zach Panning goes to Weldon. Okay. I'm up. I've got six and seven. I'll try not to delay these out. My big question here is do I – I kind of want to go on my big board – Oh, it's interesting. I've got two men's options here and a women's option that I like. Well, my first one, all right, I know who I want. I, I'm picking Scott Farble. I know Robert wouldn't pick him, but I'm worried that Weldon would. So Scott Farble is going to me, uh, number six overall. And then seventh, debating. I'm surprised no one's even mentioned the name Kira D'Amato yet. Uh, probably giving you guys ammo. A former American record holder. Do I want her? Or do I want Clayton Young? Because I don't think Clayton Young's going to be around by the next time I pick. I'm going to take Clayton Young. So my top three is set. Betsy Sina, Scott Fable, Clayton Young. Weldon, over to you. Probably went Young early was with Pan- one of the only qualifiers, only, one of the, only the two men in the field, who's gotten the Olympic standard. He's unlocked one of the two spots, 208 in Chicago. So, well, no to you. I wasn't sure about the heat. Uh, can I get a 10 day forecast? It's almost it's almost popping up on my weather app. It's Tuesday right now that I can see into next Thursday. What, next Thursday in Orlando, the high is 66. It's pretty good for weather for marathoning, but the race is until Saturday, so I haven't can't go that far into the future yet. Kira D'Amato. 
Kira D'Amato, the former American record holder, goes to Weldon. Now I have my final two picks. That's right. Yeah, you're finishing your team here, Robert. And you can do a long shot. No, one, no one's mentioned Princeton alum Matthew McDonald. Winner career, 209 marathoner. It has, What's Footsum? Oh, my God. This is like the ninth pick. The number one talent in the damn draft has fallen to number nine. I've got to take advantage of it. It's been a mistake by you guys. Take the Olympic bronze medalist, Molly Seidel. Damn it. I was hoping you guys would forget about her. I was gonna, She was going to be my last pick. Yeah. I mean, the risk is, you know, all this Instagram speculation. Oh, she hasn't been posting on Strava. But if she's in the field, I like her chances. So I think that's a good, that's a risk worth taking, Robert. All right. Final pick, Rojo. And I said they wouldn't do it. But this way I can play it both ways. My fellow 40 member, 40 plus club member. It's a flat course. No, I'm not doing that. Stick to your guns. Don't try to play it both ways. That's not Rojo. I was going to pick Sarah Hall, but I don't think anyone's taken the defending trials champion. Alephine Tulemuk. Okay, Alephine Tulemuk, who had to withdraw from a full marathon in Chicago, uh, but she is on Robert's team. Should I take Kellen Taylor instead? It's too late. we got to wrap this thing up. Weldon, you have fourth and final. All right, Robert. We will. What about a long shot, Robert? It's a long shot. If they haven't been picked, you get them. Well, if I say them, y'all will know who they are. Just say no, the can, name, we, and we'll judge. If either of us would have considered picking them, we can maybe reserve the right. But if it's a true Budweiser long shot, it wouldn't be picked by. Okay, I would love to have Paul Chalimo or Leonard Career, considering my thing. Leonard Career was fourth at the last trial. Sorry, he doesn't count. Chalimo. Mm, Two-time Olympic medalist. Okay. I don't know if he qualifies either. Suzy Albertson? No, these guys are like legitimate contenders. These aren't Budweiser long okay. shots. No, but the real long shot I want, and I love you, Isaiah Rodriguez. That's a Budweiser long shot. You can have Isaiah. If Isaiah... That guy's tough. That yeah. guy's tough as hell. He pushes the pace. He might... He, he's like CJ Albertson with talent. Ooh. All right, well, over to you. Pick number 11, your fourth and final pick. I went with Panning second. Mance, Panning, D'Amato, that's my team right now. Yep. Should have gone, put a little more. Sarah Hall still out there? Yep. I'm going to pick Fiona O'Keefe over Sarah Hall. Wow. Okay, I feel like I would have let you have... Am I? Am I? What? I said, am I going to pick her? Okay, are you or not? Answer the question. I am. Sorry, Sarah. Fiona O'Keefe. Wow. Well, I probably would have let you have her as Budweiser long shot, but now I go to debate. All right. I, now, since no one else can take okay. picks here, They're I all... really think through my thought process, but... The- People listening at home, Fiona O'Keefe runs for the Puma Elite team. She went to Stanford. Never run a marathon. She's run 67.42 for the half. 15.01 for 5K, 30.52 for 10K. So she's got pretty good 
times. The other big debut on the women's side is Natasha Rogers, who's run even faster both 5K and 10K, made two worlds team. So if you're going to pick someone who hasn't run a marathon, I think those are your two obvious answers. Sarah Hall said she said the most uninterrupted training ever. I just don't think she's very good in the heat. But I probably regret this. And I think she'll drop out. If she's going to go for it and drop out, I think Fiona O'Keefe could. I don't know. Kellen Taylor. I mean, John, it might be smart to pick somebody like Anel Rojas. Or Sarah Vaughn. Oh, wow. Like Sarah Vaughn's going to be a good. Does she really think she's going to make the team? Is she going to go for broke or run smart and get a top 10? I don't know. I mean, though. My big board right now, I've got Lena Correa, Sarah Hall, Futsum Zanislasi, Elkana Kabat, CJ Albertson, and then Sam Schlanger in that order. Now, do I... I already have two guys, though. I feel like I should take another woman here, and that will be Sarah Hall. Futsum, you can realize Futsum, I just looked him up. He was 10th in the New York City Marathon last year? Yeah, I mean, the most Americans didn't run it, but... He had a good marathon in Rotterdam, I believe. He ran 209. Like, he's he's a contender. He can make the team, absolutely. I've heard Leonard Correa's training has been going pretty well recently, though. He was fourth at the last trials. Um, sentimental pick. I'm going Sarah Hall, putting her on my team. Robert doesn't think she has any chance. I think she's got a chance. So I want a balanced team. I've got Betsy Sina, Sarah Hall, Clayton Young, and Scott Fable. So... I like that. Maybe we'll put these together and have people vote on who picked the best team. Something like that. Should I? And I'm trying to think. I mean, notable undrafted athletes. Lena Correa. Footsom Zainsel. I mean, the people I just said. Lena Correa, Footsom Zainsel, Asiel Kanakabat, CJ Albertson, Sanchalanga, Sege Mekinen, Paul Chalimo, Sarah Vaughn, Natasha Rogers, Nell Rojas, Lindsay Flanagan. Gabby Rooker, none of them made the cut in this exercise. I mean, I wouldn't be stunned if one of them made the team. So, yeah, we'll we'll score these after the fact and see who is awarded bragging rights. We're also going to have the Let's Run Prediction Contest. Should be up and running relatively soon, by next week at least. We'll offer some prizes for that as well. Other than that, well then, I think we're done here. We've got the Alex Gibby interview coming up. Definitely stay tuned for that. But otherwise, and then one other piece of housekeeping, Friday 15 this week, I think we are going to be doing a post-BU breakdown, post-collegiate American record, world record, whatever happens in the BU 5K on Friday night. We'll have a reaction show maybe an hour or two after the fact. I got to get back from the track to my apartment, do some interviews in between, but... That would be the plan for the Friday 15 this week. We'll be maybe going live, but if you're a member of the Let's Run.com Supporters Club, you don't need to listen to it live. You can get it on demand whenever you want. So Let's Run.com slash subscribe if you want access to those Friday 15 podcasts. Other than that, well, then uh, I think we're good. Wait a second, John. Breaking news. Wait, we did have breaking news during the podcast. We didn't announce it. Addie Wiley is signed with Adidas. Is that official? You said that. I haven't looked it up myself. It is official. She announced it on Instagram. So, 
America's brightest talent at 1500 meters is now with Adidas. Congrats to her. But Sarah Hall, I reached out to her. I said, hey, would you want to talk for the trials? She said, please email me. I've emailed my questions. She's written back. I'll try to give you highlights here just in case I can't. Ch can I change my pick? I guess John's already taken her off the board. I'm eagerly awaiting to hear what she has to say. Is everything going good? Is she in two, I, 218 shape? Like, let's go. I'm extremely excited. I feel very hungry just to be able to compete, especially not having run a fall marathon. I've been training specifically this for five months. So I'm ready to finally get to the fun part. And then I said, hey, this is your six trials. How do you feel about that? She corrected me, John. This is her eighth. Because I, I, I was just, I wasn't separating track from marathon. Um, That's remarkable. Yeah, it really is. Sarah, congrats. My approach to the trials has definitely evolved from 2004 when I begged my college coaches to let me skip it. I was so overcooked from racing all three collegiate seasons. If you want more about how she's been able to do it, we'll have this interview up on Let's Run soon. I asked her, hey, you missed Houston, but at the same time you posted, grateful to hit five months without missing a day of running as I wrap up this training cycle. How's it gone? She says, yes, I was definitely disappointed to not race Houston due to flare-up in my hip because I felt really good for a good one there, and mainly I just missed racing. I probably would have raced if the trials wasn't less than three weeks away, but after the last year, I've had to learn to be much more careful with my body than I'm used to being. There's no way I'm going to risk messing this one up. Other than that, I don't think I could have asked for a better buildup from late October till now, especially after this year prior. So, John, might have been a very good pick there. Can't go through all the questions here, but... I mean, look, we've said this the whole time. There are going to be some very good marathoners who don't make this team. And there's going to be some very good marathoners who have a bad day. And I don't know. If the weather's good, I think she has a great chance to make the team if it's a little harder that's not going to favor her because that's not one of her strengths but yeah it's ugh, we're so close well 11 days away so start having some previews on the site next week some intriguing debutants we've got people like jenny simpson abdi abdi Rahman running you know des linden these aren't people i consider serious contenders to make the team but it's like hey it's kind of fun that they're in the race right so it's going to be a great event. I can't wait for it. I'll be down there. And yeah, right as the race is finishing, I will, and Betsy Siner is winning the trials, I'll get a notification saying Brighton beat Crystal Palace in the Premier League. And it'll be a, a great day to be me. The trials are so good. The Olympic Marathon trials are why Let's Run started. I'd quit my job to train for them. And it was just a pipe dream to try to make the Olympics. Didn't come true, but here's what Sarah says. I, I mean, this is a woman, this is her eighth Olympic trials, never made the team. I said, what would it like, be like to make the team? You know, she gives me the boilerplate stuff about be being focused on the process. But then she says, but that being said, I want to make this team more than ever before. I've never invested more in this sport than I did the last year and a half with this in mind. In my dreams, it's how the story ends. I hope she makes it, man. That's letsrun.com right there, where your dreams become reality. I mean, that well, would that surpass Kira D'Amato for you? You said Kira D'Amato when she went from, you know, 347 marathoner to American record holder after stepping away from the sport for eight years. You said that's 
one of the greatest stories ever in running. Would Sarah Hall finally making her first Olympic team at age 40 in her eighth Olympic trials, would that surpass D'Amato? I mean, that's, that's an amazing story if it happens. It'd be cool, but no, John, I've heard of Sarah Hall. <laughs> She's been running Olympic trials since she was like, what, 20 years old? She was a footlocker champ. Champ? Yeah. She was her husband wasn't. Like, I mean, she's one of the she's part of running royalty in America. So it wouldn't be shocking like Jerry D'Amato. But it's like the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl. I mean, granted, she hasn't come as close as the Bills did. Like, has she what's her best finish at the trials? I don't think she was ever fourth, right? So it's not like she's had like that one heartbreaking moment of agony, but she has been one of a I mean, this is the best she's been this last Olympic cycle since 2020 trials. That's when her career really took off. She got second in London marathon, broken American record in the half. Like this is her best shot to make the team. I would say is next Saturday. And the other crazy thing is John, she's done trials at every event, 1500 and up, including the steeplechase. I mean, she's tried it all. The marathon was sort of like last resort and it's probably her best event. Yeah. But wait, we never did our long shot picks. Who'd Robert take? Robert took Isai Rodriguez. I think we need to submit these long shot picks to each other to sort of make sure they hit the criteria. But Isai Rodriguez definitely qualifies. So I can't do Paul Tulumo? No, I won't accept that as a long shot. He hasn't been picked. He's a two-time Olympic medalist. I can't take. So, like, somebody still up on the board is like the 16th guy? B.S. Mbasa? Like, how far down do I have to go? I'll let you have B.S. Mbasa. Is that who you want? Screw it. I just said his name. I got to take him. All right. Your Budweiser long shot is B.S. Mbasa. All right. I'm going to give you my proposal. Does Gabby Rooker qualify as Budweiser long shot? Oh, I saw her mentioned somewhere. Oh, she's up way higher on the list than. Well, look, I'll make the case here. Yes, she's run 224. She was 11th in Chicago last fall. But former collegiate gymnastics athlete, uh, 36 years old, just signed a deal with Nike. She's works, I believe, as a nurse, but has taken some time back time off from uh you know stepping back from her responsibilities to prepare for the trials like that that's very blue collar but she's also run 224 so does that count or no she runs for nike john i think that's the definition right there no all right all right you know, she's she's a, she's a top 10 entrant she's the ninth fastest i believe entered i was hoping to sneak it by you that's yeah. i i think it's fu- that's fair that's fair to say she doesn't qualify um all right, then I need to come up with a, a different option. Well, on the woman's side, it's harder, so I'll let you take her, John. Okay. All right, I'm going Gabby Rooker. It's, I, I'm, yeah, she, she's like, parts of her story are the definition of a long shot, and then parts of it are like, well, wait, she's run 224 and she just signed a Nike contract, but yeah, all right, I'll go with her. So she's my, Bob Weiser's semi-long shot is Gabby Rooker. I mean, she's more of a long shot than, say, like, Natosha Rogers. She's got a lot of upside because she's, she's going, just improving leaps and bounds, but 
A two twenty four performance isn't going to put you on the team, right? So she's got to go to a stratosphere she hasn't been really close to. I'm sorry, two twenty four and two twenty are not the same ballpark. So we'll see. I'm sorry, she's not a nurse. She's a physician's assistant. Just to clarify that situation. Um, so yeah, she's my pick. All right, podcast isn't done for you. We've got a great interview with Alex Gibby coming up. Make sure, like, even if you don't listen to it right immediately, it is on the longer side. I think it's a terrific listen. He gets into his coaching backstory, what it's like coaching Graham Blanks, his philosophy uh, as a coach, how it differs coaching at a smaller school like William and Mary's Almada, where he started out, versus Michigan, versus Harvard. They're all different environments, but. He's had a pretty cool journey in the coaching world, and now he's got the best distance runner, at least in the fall of 2023, the best distance runner in the NCAA in Graham Blanks. So I think you'll learn a lot. I think you guys will enjoy it. Here he is, Alex Gibby of Harvard. All right, our guest today on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast is Alex Gibby. He's in his seventh season as the distance coach at Harvard University, and 2023 was his best year yet. The women were HEPS champions in cross country for the third year in a row. They finished 25th at NCAAs. The men finished second at HEPS and 15th at NCAAs. And most notably, he also coached two NCAA individual champions. In June, Maya Ramston won the women's 1500 meters in Austin, while in November, Graham Blanks won the men's cross country title in Charlottesville, the first Ivy League man to win the title. Gibby, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start, you know, before we get to the Harvard stuff, what's going on right now, I kind of want to start with your running background. You ran at William & Mary. You graduated in 1997. What would you say is your most notable running accomplishment? (laughs) Well, we talked about this a little bit pre-podcast, but I... My biggest performance, I think, in uh, my time at William Mary was, uh, you know, by 1997, pin relays, I ran out of my mind at 10,000 meters, dipped just under 30 minutes, which was also the NCAA provisional mark. So I actually got on an NCAA list before I graduated. And somewhere around 8,000, 8, 8,400 meters, I blew Weldon Johnson's doors off en route to it. And so you take down one Johnson brother, by proxy, you get the other. Yeah, I think we have to agree on that because clearly Weldon was the better runner than Robert. I'm a little bit disturbed that you knew, Alex, that you beat Weldon by 22 seconds. Here we are 27 years later. Like, was he a big, you know, he was a year ahead of you in college, I guess, right? Like, was he, were you idolizing Weldon Johnson, the fifth placer in the Ivy League? Like, I'm confused that you remember that. Or did you look it up right before the podcast? You know, I looked it up a, a couple of days ago because I remember he was in the race because when he had his big breakthrough at Worlds, World crawl. I'm um, sorry, U.S. Championships to go to Worlds or whatever it was. I was like, I remember that guy. I don't think he was very good. And sure enough, I don't think I was very good. And and we beat him. So, um, uh, but I, I also I don't know if he was my year or he was younger. Um, either way, um, I re-verified that uh, performance here last couple of days. Was that race at like 11 p.m. at night? I know when the when I ran in college, all the distance races at Penn were always Thursday night, and they were like 11 or you know, 12, 
12 a.m. or something like that. Like, do you remember any specifics of that? I started in one day and finished in the next. Um, and then, yeah. And then uh, I remember uking my brain out across the brick wall at Penn Relays. And then Andy Girardi, who was my coach, was, took me to Denny's. And, uh, and there's nothing like a hard 10K in the middle of the night, followed by Denny's, followed by a morning run the next morning for sheer agony. Oh my God, that is like my exact pen relays experience from 2011. I ran the 5K dead of night. I was dry heaving, but I did not actually throw up successfully. And we went to Denny's afterwards. The only difference is you actually ran well and I didn't. So uh, it brings back memories though. Well, listen, I ran it. I ran at pen relays the next year as a post collegiate when I was coaching at William and Mary. And I think I would have lapped myself. Um, so we, you know, we all have bad ones at Penn. So I think my senior year in high school, by the way, I was last in the high school boys 3K. I think it was after that meet, or it might have been the year before the 10,000. Weldon, myself, a bunch of other guys, we hopped in the car and went to Atlantic City with the Arkansas guys. So Teddy Mitchell was, was the reigning NCAA 10,000 meter champion. So I don't know if that, what year he won that in. So it was either it was the next year, and he, he, he was at the casino with us. And then he's like, he, they got very adamant. They're like, we got to go. I'm like, why? They're like, we have to he head back. John's going to be upset. We got the long run. I was like, you guys have a long run? <laughs> and we drove right back through the night, and they, I guess, were still running. He didn't have a good of a, as good of a year that year, so I'm not sure if that played a role. But um, That fits with the old Arkansas stories. Yeah. So how did you get into coaching? Is it something you always knew you wanted to do? No, um, I, I didn't even think about it. My, my, I was going through my senior in college and I wanted to, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I thought I wanted to pursue potentially academic degrees in history, history and government as my undergraduate. Um, I went ahead and got my master's in history. Um, and I was going through that application process with the idea that, hey, maybe I do state department, CIA, potentially FBI. Um, a Kathy reminded me that I filed a uh, filled out an application to the FBI 25 years ago, 20, 26 years ago. Um, but I ended up um, uh, sticking around for my master's and then Gerard offered me an opportunity to come and volunteer. And I had never thought about it at that point. So I spent two years with Andy volunteering. I finished my master's. Um, and by that point, the bug had kind of bit, so to speak. And so I spent one more year at William & Mary before um, people decided to start paying me to coach. And so that was first step was leaving William & Mary, going down to Stephen F. Austin. I got hired down there by a guy that had been University of Virginia's throws coach. So he knew me, um, hired me down at Stephen F. Austin, which was which is a big jump. I'm, I'm a Virginian. I'm an East Coaster. And suddenly I'm in deep East Texas. It was a little bit of a culture shock. <clears throat> and what happened to that FBI application? Like, did they did someone actually read it? Like, if it had been approved, would you be doing that instead? No, I was I was told at that point, you know, with what they were looking for, I probably would have to have either an undergraduate degree in chemistry for forensics reasons, already have an MBA for, um, you know, financial crimes or come out of law enforcement or the military. So I was told that I had like a 0.01% chance. So uh, well, and the, C the CIA would have been more likely. Okay. Well, it's probably probably a good thing you ended up in coaching. Um, so now, Robert, yeah. Well, that's kind of scary, CIA. Is, is that because you got to be like be able to lie as a recruiter in college? And same thing, the CIA, you can just tell a recruit something with a straight face. And well, I don't think I lie in the recruiting process. Uh, I, I think I'm pretty straightforward, um, which is probably why I'm not a very good recruiter. Um, um, but you know, better lucky than good in recruiting. Um, it's uh, now the CIA. Um, my dad's um, my dad has a defense engineering firm in Northern Virginia. 
Um, they, and both my brothers are military, both my brothers are Cornell undergrads actually. Um, but, uh, um, they were both military. And so we had connections in the community with the type of work my dad was doing. It's something I was really interested in and really admired. So can you tell me, you know, can you describe what your coaching philosophy is and who your coaching influences were? Yeah. Um, so, uh, Simple coaching philosophy is this, is that we get, you know, a four, four year window into their athletic lives. Um, we want to influence them in a positive sense um, and put them in a situation where they're leaving here as better athletes than they arrived. I mean, that's that's as simple as it gets because it covers a whole litany of sins um, during that four year process. Um, in terms of influence, um, you know, I had a terrific high school coach, Buzz Mail, um, who you know, I have a lot of respect for high school coaches because they get young men and young women who've never figured out how to be serious at anything in their life and teach them how to be serious at something. Um, at least that was my perspective. Um, but I had a terrific high school coach who taught me love for the sport. Um, I was fortunate enough that I got to William & Mary and I ran into Walt Drent, who, A, not only allowed me on the team, um, but was um, a tremendous influence in how to build a locker room culture, how to, again, how to transition from high school to college. Like in terms of motivation and locker room speeches, I don't think there's anyone better than Walt, um, Walt Drenth in terms of getting a bunch of guys on the same page and pointed in the same direction. And so I learned a lot from just listening to them, um, you know, philosophically, just like my um, later coach, Andy Gerard, they were aerobically oriented. They were patient. They knew the developmental process could take years and they were willing to see it through. Um, and they were willing to watch me screw some things up and some of my teammates up with the understanding that we're going to learn from it and we're going to be able to get better. Um, and then, of course, Andy Gerard replaces Walt, comes in from Stanford, applies some of their training methodology to what we had already done. And then that's when we really started to take off um, with a bunch of guys that Walt had gone on the same page and led and attracted to William & Mary, like Matt Lane, if you remember that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember him from 5,000 meters, nothing comes easy. The, uh, documentary 20 years ago for the yeah. Olympic trials. Um, yeah. so in terms of like training, do you have like core tenets or principles that you abide by? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would think, um, there's three very generic pieces. If you really want to go through the recruiting process, one, we, we tend to be aerobically oriented in nature in the sense that we want to get the aerobic house situated as soon as possible. Um, and is substantially as possible before we move on to some of the, the fancier stuff. Um, so we tend to be aerobically oriented in nature. Um, we tend to be progressive in nature in the sense that like a lot of my young athletes aren't seeing volume totals that are terrifically advanced from what they handled in high school. But the understanding is every six months, we're going to add something, we're going to add something, we're going to add something. A lot of times it's volume, sometimes it's intensity, sometimes it's cross training, but we're progressive in workload. Um, and then the third part is we're individualized. Um, a lot of our starting points are predicated on what they did in high school. Um, you've got a, you know, high school male running 30 to 35 miles a week. It's going to be difficult to get them by 45, 50 miles a week, the first semester on, on campus. Um, but again, from a developmental standpoint, we've got four years to solve that problem. And that's the way we look at it. But if you, if you adhere to those three things, I think that generally incorporates what we are, what we do. Um, mm -hmm. now, one of the things, uh, we had Graham Blanks on the podcast a few months ago after he won the NCAA cross-country title, 
And he talked a little bit about the training. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that what we would normally call easy days, you know, the days between workouts, he still runs them pretty quick, uh, mostly around six minutes per mile pace. And I'm wondering, is that something like he's a 1303 guy? He can probably handle it just fine. But is it is that something all of your athletes do, or is it just for someone who's at a certain level? What's that? Like? Yeah. So yes, yes and no. Um, yes and no is sort of the simple answer to that question. Um, yeah, I listened to Graham's podcast, and um, you always have to take Graham with a grain of salt, right? Like he's he's this sort of romantic existentialist on one side, but he's also a guy that at some point in high school probably owned a Prefontaine shirt. And so you got to blend the two of those to really understand Graham. Um, and he's, uh, he's hard to pin down on any, any given day that way. But um, so, I mean, there, there's a couple things, right? One, one, I am not a terrifically huge fan of the jog and recover system that, you know, that's developed in high school. I do think if we're looking to build the quote unquote aerobic house um, and get that in place by your mid twenties, there's some things we could be doing that are probably a little bit more efficient. You know, there's a pretty broad range with the system what I would term the sustainable aerobic spectrum. And so our, our simple theory is that we'd like to be more on the optimal side of things. And there's some reasons for that, right? One, um, when we talk about our, our maintenance days, okay, I tend to give my athletes three prongs in terms of how I want them to handle their normal days. We don't call them easy days. Um, we call them normal days. One is, you know, heart rate. You know, we, we, we ask most of our student athletes to operate, you know, in the one fifties, once they get past the first couple miles of running, make sure they're attended with those heart rate ranges and they don't run through the zone, so to speak. Um, number two, we, we always talk about perceived effort. Um, you know, in, in, at Harvard, for example, um, and Jonathan, you live in Boston, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing faster in the world than a Charles river mile. It's flat, it's rhythmic. Half the time you have a tailwind, like, the splits you'll see on the Charles Road, they're just not real. Like, it's not real running. Like, we'll head over to the Middlesex Fells and we'll turn off the mileage on the watches and we just go base time because you're running on those single track trails. I mean, pace is just out the window. And so we talk about perceived effort, what we want it to feel like, how we want it to feel. And the third thing is, and this is a sort of more of a Harvard development, is they, they always want pace ranges. And so with our freshmen, you're usually talking six to six twenties, you know, with our upperclassmen, it's five fifties to six fifteen. So it's a pretty broad range, right? But when you, with the, with the absolute nature of the student athletes, I, um, I, uh, coach at Harvard. Sometimes we throw the first two prongs out the window and we focus on the black and white, which is paces, right? Um, and that's difficult across a broad group, particularly because, one thing I love about my group and I also don't like it. My group at the same time is they head out the door together. The women run together and the men run together. And that covers a broad ranges of years, broad ranges of development, broad ranges of talent level. Like Harvard, we let walk-ons on a lot of times if they get in on their own merit. And, you know, if a 930, 940 guys trying to try and with Graham, that's going to be a really difficult um, thing to deal with. And so, some of the stuff we talk about, some of the stuff we preach, um, but they really have, to, you know, it is individualized in the sense that they're going to have to take control of their own destiny when they head out the door and monitor some of those other variables we talked about, perceived effort, hard rate ranges. Um, but by optimizing, if you will, some of those easy days in a sustainable fashion, um, we feel like over the course of four years, we can get a little bit, ra- little bit better rate of development out of our young men than perhaps other places are doing. Um, 
you know, whether at most places I've been, whether it's Harvard, Charlotte, William and Mary, Stephen F. Austin, we've always had a deficit of talent, if you will. Harvard's, I say that in a manner of speaking, in the sense that we have some terrifically talented individuals, but I'm not getting six to eight of them in the door like some of this uh, um, superstar programs across the country. We are still dependent on young men and young women that get into Harvard on their own merit that are going to need to develop for us to be truly a national class program. And that's something we've hinted at, I think, at Harvard, but we haven't achieved. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, mo- no, no, that answered most of what I was wondering. I guess some of the s- some specifics, like when did this philosophy uh, take hold for you? Like when did you start having your guys run a little harder, I'd say, than the typical program on these normal days in order to kind of boost their aerobic development? Uh, yeah, I, I would probably use the term quicker rather than harder, right? Um because okay, one of the sure. one of the things you'll see there is there is a developmental lag, if you will, when you when you start to incorporate heavier doses of aerobic training. Right, the first the first thing the body goes through is a stale period. Um, we see that a lot with our freshmen. It's part of what we sell, part of what's explained. Now, it's really easy when they're talking to Ace or a Graham or Matt Prayer or Kieran. It's like, oh, what happened to me, right? Um, and it's like there are there's a uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. But, um. Once you get through that initial adjustment period, and that that's different lengths for different folks, um, again, part of it is you're pushing back on them to be able to manage the Harvard experience. Um, one thing we found is, hey, if you're willing to sleep nine hours a night and you're willing to eat, consume calories with a passion, you're probably going to recover from the work we're doing. If you are sleeping six to seven hours a night, you're not refueling appropriately, You know, then success becomes a matter of, of chance rather than planning. Um, and that's one of the things we try to convey on a, on a daily basis. But once we get past that initial developmental phase, you're going to find that most of our young men, uh, young w- women in these cases, can operate these mates for paces in the 150s. And it is controlled. Not all of them. Some, some we have to continue to make adjustments. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the, the foundational piece of this, you know, it starts back when I was in college. Like Walt Drenth, um, you know, asked that we operate, you know, he back in the day, it was 630 pace, right? For him, he's like, I think you guys could do it. It'll take you a couple of years to get used to, but the, the benefits will be there. Um, and um, then it bled into my own coaching experience. I don't like to coach in an autobiographical sense, but I did see the value across different personalities with some of that fundamental aerobic development. Um, and so that's something we, we look to accustom to. But once you make that jump, um, some of those values look the same. Um, there, there are some pluses in the short term as well, in the sense, particularly with some of my younger athletes, by younger men, by training a little bit more consistently, it mitigates some of the um, workout heroics that we typically see out of 18 and 19 year old men, where they run their, they race their brains out on a Tuesday and Friday and wonder why they can't replicate on a Saturday. Um, and so for us, it, it does mute that a little bit. Um, and then the last piece I would say in this too, um, you know, when, when you are running at say six minutes, six fifteen pace for seven to seven thirty, you're more efficient. Um, and the, the, the wear and tear on some of the soft and connective tissue tends to get a little less. Again, you have to back it up with the recovery piece. Um, but putting those recovery variables in the hands of 18 to 23 year olds in, in a college setting is probably a pretty good lesson if they want to, uh, they want to take control of their own success. I find this whole 
talk about the pace of the easy days to be pretty interesting because I think Weldon's whole training was known for being so slow on his easy days. I mean, if, if you asked him, you know, I mean, there's a famous article on Let's Run Why I Sucked in College. I'd say he ran 6.15, 6.30 pace every day on his easy days. Kind of was also a workout hero. I mean, the, the coach at Yale would be like, you're running the same workouts as the All-Americans in the same times. So why do you suck? And then he got out of college, slowed down everything. The workouts weren't even better. It may have even been slower, but he started running a lot more. Obviously, he moved to altitude and got, like, minutes faster. So, and when I moved out to Flagstaff in 2000 to train with him for the trials, I got out there, and I was not nearly as good as him. And I called up our coach, John Kelly. I was like, this is too – the easy days are a joke. Like, this is too slow. Should I, should I secretly run 20 seconds a mile faster? And he won't realize it, and he'll go with me. And our coach, John, was like, no, he just moved out to it. He's running more than ever. Like, the pace in the easy days is the last thing we're going to worry about. But he was worried about stride mechanics. And when I called John up last night to tell him I was talking to you, I said, hey, you know, Harvard's doing kicking ass, but they're running faster on the easy days. And I was kind of surprised John didn't seem taken aback by that. He said, well, Lader's guys, you know, and John talked to Lader. He's like, they used to tell me, like, you know, he was known for going super slow, but he's like, we weren't jogging on our base period. You know, they would sort of get to a high end pace, not really threshold, but, you know, as long as they weren't stressing themselves, no, no metabolic stress. So, John was wondering, like, maybe the new shoes were helping. Like, do, do the guys wear the super shoes on their e easy days? Like, um, Some try to sneak them in. I, I, I try trying not to. And, in fact, I try to keep the super shoes out of the thresholds as well. Um, that's more psychological than it is physiological. But um, we try to keep the super shoes out of the anything from threshold and down. Um, again, there, there's sometimes I don't mind them feeling a little heavy, a little unresponsive, and seeing them work their way through those problems. Um, relative to what they'll feel in a race. Um, well, I mean, the thing with welded too, I would wonder too, like, I, listen, I exist in an Ivy League environment. The academic demands are extraordinarily high. Um, it is certainly possible that what Coach Bartold was doing with welded would have worked if the appropriate recovery variable had happened. And the other part too, and this is not to um, diminish anything he did post-collegiately, but everything he did at Yale did have implications in his later career, right? Like some of sometimes it does take a couple years for the foundational pieces to click in, and then it's just adding the final pieces. Regardless, um, you know, Weldon in his post collegiate um, career found uh, the ideal balance, and that's, that's to be respected. Yeah, that's a good point about the recovery because we were running flex staff, we were just running, taking a nap, eating a smoothie, running again. Listen, new it, academics, and and he, he also said, you know, I, he iced his knee every day for four years in college because he was running on the pavement in New Haven versus trails and flag stuff. So, um, yeah, and, and that's it. Like, I, I don't listen. If I had a group that wasn't going to invest in the way I asked him to outside of here, we wouldn't try to train the way we do. We'd have to make adjustments. Um, and you know, and you ask about some differences between earlier, um, perhaps Michigan or William Mary and Harvard. One of the things we've done at Harvard is we've shifted to a six-day model. Um, one, because of the academic stress, we take off Thursdays and or jog on Thursdays. Um, we call it shakeout, um, primarily because of the need for discussion sections or lab sciences. And so my group is absolutely stacked usually on Thursday from, from morning to evening. Um, but we're able to get some quality volumes in over the course of six days in a repeated fashion. I guess, John, we probably should clarify one thing because when you told me we were talking to Gibby and that he had a wild training thing, 
because there was a message board thread saying, confirmed Harvard XC unorthodox training method. So I was reading this thread last night, and it kind of surprised me because you and I had hung out at World Cross Country and, and Jordan when I was coaching at Cornell and you were William Mary, we used to talk. And I, I always thought you were a really good coach. And I didn't think your stuff was radical from, from our conversations. And I'm on the message board last night, and I was reading this. This thread was popular a couple of months ago. It says, a close friend of mine who has affiliations with Harvard XC just told me about the training regime. The team follows the normal two-workout, one-long-run training schedule. But supposedly, oh, all of that is six-minute mile pace. The team also competes a circuit of weighted lifts, bench press, traps, deadlifts, following each running work, workout rep. They make regular stops on their weekly long runs to complete the circuit in question. Thoughts? And there's like five or six pages on this. And I was like, wow, man, this is going to be a wild interview. I, he's really changed things up in the last 10 years. But apparently I found out right before we started recording, this is all a lie and some troll was just having a good, good trolls, time? Trolls. I have a team of trolls. Um, I have a team of trolls, a unit, if you will. Um, probably half of them have contributed to that thread. Um, and it's to the point where, so we'll, we have like three different long run venues um, in the fall or in the spring. We go out to Lexington, we'll go out to the Fells, and I'll bring them out to Wellesley, Mass, where I live, and we'll run the trail system there. I've got a bunch of weights in my garage, and I watch my guys after the long run go dragging 45-pound dumbbells out of my garage. Like, what's going on? Like, coach, don't worry about it. We got this. And then they come back five minutes later. Evidently, they were doing wind sprints down the trails, they called them, and then like repping, lifting in the woods, doing RDLs and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, and they were putting it on whatever fake burner account they have and then probably linking it to let's run um and just having fun with it like and i i enjoy that i enjoy that about them i i think you know particularly at harvard we take the academic piece seriously and we certainly take performance seriously but they don't take themselves serious and i think that's a really good vibe but last fall in the recruiting process i was asked about this by three different parents three different times. And I was like, all right, guys, it's, it's time to let this thing die. I, 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 I like before losing recruits because someone actually believes what they read on the message board. I said, like, we, we got to fix this variable. But I thought it might be the opposite though. I was like, wow, he's got something nobody else has. I've got to, I've got to, maybe you should go with it. Like, yeah, we got to, we do it, but we can't tell you until you get here. Yeah. I, you know, no, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll let that one go. So it's uh, that, that's, that's a little bit of false advertising. All right, myth busted. The, the one other thing I wanted to talk about this sort of these normal days, like you said, there's an adjustment period for most athletes, and it can vary. Like, do you ever have kids who just can't adjust? Like they, and what do you do then? So it, I would say probably about fifteen percent of kids can't adjust, right? And you look at it almost like a spectrum. Like in coaching, you've got kids that will adapt to whatever you want. We call those the no brainers, right? They're also the outliers in you know, the outliers can't justify rules. Then you've got sort of the middle part, which is the critical mass that you want your training philosophy to apply to, right? The, high, the quick responders will respond to anything. You want to develop something the middle group can, but you also have to be cognizant of the, 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 the non-responders. Um, and that could be a little bit difficult in the sense that you sit down and have a conversation. It's like, it's not about being good or anything like that. It's like, we're going to have to break this down a little bit differently. You're going to have to be disciplined. Maybe you're after the first 10 to 15 minutes when the guys start to wind up, they go through their warm-up period. You're going to have to be attentive to your heart monitor. You're just going to have to run by yourself or with a very small group. Um, you know, we, we, had a, we had a kid at William & Mary that was um, a pretty good runner through his first three years at, at William & Mary. He was a great cross guy, but he's good on the track. Um, 
but he kept, we go through like six period, six week periods of terrific training and, um, then he'd get sick or something softer connective tissue would creep up and we'd have an interruption and then it'd be another four to six weeks of success then interruption. So we're having these systemic interruptions and we started taking a look at where his heart rate was on thresholds and maintenance paces and long runs. And it was just too far out of whack. Um, so he had to run on a, um, uh, heart monitor for the last year of his time at William and Mary. And he goes from a kid that was pretty good at an Eastern level to the first kid out of the end of my final in the steeple. And he was in a position where he literally PR'd for like, January 30th in every different event until all the way through the early parts of June. And so, you know, I'm, I think I'm a little bit better at my job than I was 15 years ago, I hope, but you know, we try to listen and identify those people that aren't and find a different way of identifying their needs, making sure that they continue to move forward, that they're being developed aerobically, but it's in a sustainable pattern. So you were William and Mary for seven years and towards the end, you guys were one of the best distance programs in the country. You were fifth at NCAA Cross in 2009. My sister's an alum. I've been to the campus. It's like a lovely school. Like, I really uh, enjoyed when I would visit there. Like, why'd you leave? Well, um, as an alumnus, I never thought it was. Um, and listen, we were really happy with fifth in the country, but we averaged 10th in the country for the previous four years. And that's something I think that's really hard to do at a place like William & Mary, um, as, as evidenced by where they are now. Um, but it's, um, you know, I was <laughs> after seven years at a place, I was, I was a little frustrated with what I saw the ceiling that was imposed by, um, our administration. Like we had six scholarships in our program of which one to two of them went to oh. our, our field and throws events. And so I had a ton of all Americans on 25% and simply score on 33%. Um, uh, we had NCAA qualifiers individually that they, they did it their senior year. So they left us walk-ons like, um, and so I was just sitting there. If you give us another couple, couple scholarships, we could take that step and win a trophy. And the administration wasn't our, our uh, operations budget was terrible. The equipment was terrible. Um, and I was thankful for what we had because our alumni's alumni base was really contributing to get us there. Um, you know, I think at that point we had a three or $4 million endowment, which our scholarships rolled off of, but we were at a point where I was a little bit frustrated with um, artificially imposed ceilings. Um, loved Williamsburg, loved my alma mater, loved my team. But I, I was literally sitting there in Northern Virginia at my parents' house one day and my phone rings and it was Michigan. And I talked to the head track coach at that point, Fred LaPlante, for probably an hour, hour and a half. I get off the phone and Kathy's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I think I was just offered the Michigan job. And so jumped on a plane a couple of days later sat with my, the associate AD at Michigan. They doubled my salary, gave me a car, like paid my car insurance. And suddenly it was like, you had an opportunity to do some things that you couldn't do at William Mary. It was, it was a different, it was going to be a different experience. And I think after seven years of William Mary, perhaps it was a little bit stale. I wanted to see how the other half lived. And so Kathy and I decided to take that jump. And were you replacing Warren Warhurst or was there another guy in between the two? No, replaced him. Okay. So what was your four, you were in Michigan for four years. Like what'd you learn there? What went right? What went wrong? Well, I learned a ton um, in so many different ways. Like the one I learned that the William Mary model wasn't going to work at, at, at Michigan after a couple of years. Um, number two, I learned if you ever get into a job 
that's high pressure like Michigan was, particularly the Michigan, Michigan back then with Dave Brandon's AD, make sure the setup is there. Um, the leadership is there. The alignment is there. The, there's young talent to be developed. Um, one of the things that I, when I arrived at Michigan, um, you know, their culture was in a little bit of disrepair. Summer training wasn't being attended to. They're partying every weekend. Talent uh, acquisition was probably not equal to that of, say, Wisconsin, Penn State, Ohio State, places like that at that point. Oh, um, Indiana, right? Because when I got to Michigan, you know, what is it? Two years later, McBurn wins a national title. You know, Indiana is a consistent single-digit presence. It was no joke. Um, and uh, But you also learned what it was to work in a really pressurized environment. And if, if it's something you wanted and something you looked forward to or, or, or could manage. Um, you know, William & Mary, no one cared. Like, you know, when I was, if I won the CAA or I was fifth in the country, it was, it was the same email. Like, no one really cared. They were appreciative of success, but they, they didn't care. In Michigan, they cared about everything all the time. And that was a little bit of... Um, a little bit of uh, um, a shock to the system. Um, Michigan was also jumping in the deep end in the sense that I, you know, I, I couldn't do it the way I did at Waymere. I couldn't bring in some talented kids, but also some nine, 10, nine, 22 milers, develop them and then give them the opportunities to learn how to be good at a division one level, learn how to be good at um, cross country. Cause we had roster limits and track that um, there's only a limited amount of distance guys they could compete. I know Rojo, you ran into this a little bit with Nathan, like you couldn't bring some young guys to compete at good opportunities the way you wanted to. Um, but it was, it was a real shock to the system. And I remember sitting there my first year indoors at the big 10 meet and we're on this crappy Illinois track that the six lane track, the lanes are so small that when you put grow men on there, they have to turn sideways in order to start the mile. And I'm watching these guys run 401 or 402 to qualify. I'm like, we're, we're not ready for this. Like, we don't have the guys in-house to be developed. We don't have the guys, uh, um, you know, we're not recruiting those type of guys right now. And so, you know, it was starting to, uh, it, it was a little bit of a rude awakening um, in some capacities. But, um, you know, we started to turn things around. Um, you know, we were, we lost a Big Ten title in the last right away my fourth year um, in cross country. Um, you know, Mason Furlick and, Craig Forey's were terrific on the track for Michigan. Um, got a year, got a year with Ben Flanagan, which is fun to see what he was able to do. Um, and so we were starting to get the guys in. There were a few more guys. Um, Corey Glines was we we recruited. He ended up winning. I, I think being a national runner up with uh, NAU um, after I left, he transferred to NAU. So um, Michigan wasn't always fun, but it was a hell of a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And then so, you know, in between. Michigan and Harvard, you were at Charlotte for a couple of years. But then you get to Harvard in 2017. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Oh, Let me interrupt here. So, so basically, you're like, go at Michigan, right? Yep. I mean, I was, I was told I wasn't good enough. I wasn't the guy to lead the program. And it was it was tough to hear. But did, did the head coach leave and they were just looking to start all over or what? No. So, um, this is okay. I'll tell the story a little bit. So, in 2013, my boss gets fired, right? We weren't any good in track. We're averaging probably 10th in the Big Ten. So, my boss gets fired. I sit down, I'm one of the two people they interview for the head track and field job, right? Maybe a tactical misfire because either, you know, either you go for the crown or, and get it or you, you don't. And so then they hired uh, Jerry Clayton to come in. And long and short of it, I was notified in August of that year that I probably wasn't going to be Jerry's guy in any way, shape or form. So I was dead man walking for my last year at Michigan. And that was 
unknown quantity, I think, around the NCAA with people that were, were connected. Um, and, and I knew it pretty, pretty abruptly. Um, it's still probably one of my more enjoyable years at Michigan because I relaxed and I was just like, hell with it. Let's just do our best and figure out where it goes. Um, and I had a pretty good team. I kind of remember, um, I mean, that, that seems pretty normal. Like if AD leaves or if your head track coach leaves as, as, as an assistant, you, <laughs> the odds of you leaving shortly thereafter are pretty high. But then I remember you went to UNC Charlotte and I remember talking to you when you started there and I remember thinking like, what? Like, what school is this, man? Like, why are you there? And then you were thinking, no, I think I can do what we did while we marry here if not higher. And, you know, you were there for what, three or four years? Three years. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Three years. Well, well, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, you know, Michigan lets me go. Um, and it was one of those years where there was no other really interesting jobs available. Like Missouri hired before I was fired. That would have been kind of interesting. Army was open. Columbia was open. And so there just there just wasn't much movement. And so you start to look deeper. Charlotte opens. Um, and um, so I reached out to Charlotte. Charlotte calls me back. Um, the funny thing was... Um, the uh, head track and field coach at Charlotte was a guy named Bob Olison. Um, he was uh, uh, he actually competed in college for Jerry Clayton, the head coach at Michigan. So Jerry gave me a strong and positive recommendation, and I'm like, okay, well, um, <laughs> that's just weird. Let me go on one side, and then you give me a strong positive re- recommendation. But I was appreciative of it. But we went to Charlotte, and. You know, I, I thought it would be a little bit more of a way station than it was, but we loved our time there. I love my boss, love the area. You can recruit. It's a beautiful campus. Um, it's brand new. Uh, and we started to make some inroads there that we had a bunch of young men when I left. Caroline Sang uh, scored and uh, at the end of my third year on the track at 10K, just missed in the 5K. So we had some good things going. I was It was a lot of fun for us. Um, but yeah, when, when I got let go of Michigan, you're just surveying, surveying the landscape and you're trying to figure out what works, what fits. And I'm from the Southeast. I'm like, I know North Carolina. I can recruit North Carolina. And so Kathy and I went back to what was comfortable. And then you come to Harvard in 2017. They've already got sort of a distance-oriented head coach, Jason Soretsky. So when you get brought on, are you immediately the head distance coach or how did that come about? So uh, why did you go there? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I say this with um, a smile on my face. I don't know if I'd wish the director level position at the Ivy level on my worst enemy some days. Um, it's, it's, it's a busy job. And so, you know, Jason is in his office uh, dealing with a multitude of things from nine to three every day, 10 to three, whatever it ends up being. Um, that's really difficult to develop, uh, devote the man hours, woman hours, so to speak, to, to managing student athletes, building relationships with student athletes, um, training student athletes. And so when I got to Harvard, you know, I got to, again, it's one of those things I'm sitting there on my um, porch in August of 2017. And I get a call from Jason basically saying, would you be interested? You know, it, he had to let the previous coach go. I think at that point, I think he was focused on trying to hire a female to coach the female women's, the women's distance squad. Um, it wasn't working. He wasn't getting the people he wanted. And so he wanted to rethink it a little bit. And so he called me, asked if I would be interested. And I, you know, Fundamentally, I took a look at their roster. I saw who they historically recruited. And I'm like, you know what? I, I don't know much, but I, I, I do think I can make a difference. I think I can write the shipper. I think this is a program that should get to the NCAAs every year. It's something we could do. Um, and so when I arrived at Harvard, my 
the title was still in flux in terms of responsibility. Um, but as we talked about it, I ended up um, grabbing the distance groups on both sides. Jason was coaching the mile down. And then slowly over the course of the next two years, the milers and middle distance got absorbed into my pot. Um, then Jason took the administrative tasks off my plate, if you will, um, managing 35 to 40 athletes and put them on his plate. And so right now he's more of a chief administrator and I run the middle distance and distance side of the equation. Gotcha. So when you got to Harvard, the men, I looked it up, they had made NCAAs once in cross country in the previous 37 years. And now you've been for the last five. The only one you missed was the COVID year and Harvard didn't compete. So how do you go about building a program on the distance side? Well, it, it, the, the first thing is just getting the group to care and focus. Um, and that I, I think the, the getting that initial step is just making sure that if they come down, um, a, they enjoy the time with their teammates and B, they're getting a return on their investment, right? They're getting better. And so, you know, my first year was just a dumpster fire. Like there's just so many things and going so many different directions, but we started to stabilize my second year. Um, Kieran Tuntovic came back from his gap year, um, which was something I recommended develop developmentally. He wanted to take it, do it, adjust to me from off campus, um, but Kieran came back. We had Hugo Milner, who was a pretty good young talent. Will Battershell made the NCAA that year in the outdoor steeple. Um, and so things started to click on the women's side. Lisa Tersh was a national class competitor. And Yule made the NCAA 15. So by the end of my second year, started to kind of bite. And I get, and it gets back to, do they enjoy the time with their teammates? And is the investment worthwhile? Particularly in the Ivy League, if you're going to get them to cross the river, so to speak, and we use that term at Harvard, like it's got to be worth their while. Otherwise, there's so many other things they could do from debate society to research. Like they're intelligent kids. And if it's not worth the return, they're not going to do it. And so puts a little bit of pressure on the situation. But that, I think that's the way the Ivy League works. Um, probably any, any top level academic university. Um, but the big moment was um, halfway through my junior year. You know, we, it, we knew we had a good men's team. Um, the women's team was a little beat up coming back from the summer. And so they built through the fall, but you know, the men lost by three points to Penn at Van Cortland. And that was, a, that was coaching her. I was just trying to beat Princeton. I did not realize Penn was in the equation until they ran by us in the last 200 meters. Um, so we still look back at that. We'd be Princeton though. Just remember that Rojo. Um, but it's, uh, um, but it was, it was, it was one of those moments where, we had some things go our way that day. We had some things that we didn't manage from an adversity standpoint. And we lost because of that. Um, and the women stepped forward from, they had been eighth and sixth in the conference to a second in the conference. And then, you know, we go the next two weeks later to Buffalo in that wintery condition. So this is something that we had messaged all year since the last time we were at Buffalo and we sucked. And we simply said, hey, we're going to go back. We may not be perfect, but we're not going to suck. And that's when they went out there and, you know, we moved on to the roads, um, the whole arrival of the vapor flies on the NCAA scene. We were not the only ones wearing the vapor flies um, uh, in any capacity. Um, I think Iona was probably the only ones not in the vapor flies that was relevant that day. Mm. But the men really figured things out and the women really took a step. And it was really cool to watch both groups win the region on the same day and take that developmental step 
together, right? And it was as much emotional and mental as it was physical. And it was a lot of fun. I'm very thankful for it. And I think from there, that really adjusted the trajectory of our program. And it also gave rise to one of my favorite photos from the NCAA cross-country banquet. RIP, I don't know why they don't do this anymore, but I always like the sort of red carpet or blue carpet that have athletes come in. And there was all this talk about Harvard. They used the vapor flies in the road race and the regionals the week before. And your guys just show up with the Harvard sweaters and then they're all wearing vapor flies. And they even got in like the Kipchoge pacing formation. I think Kieran Tuntovit was in the middle. It, it was so funny. I loved how they leaned into it. So that was really enjoyable. You know what? Oh, here's a plug. So the the the, uh, um, the genius behind that, so to speak, was our team captain, Charlie Davis, who was, you know, truthfully one of the worst runners on my roster, but one of the best leaders I've ever had. Um, and he's not a guy that sh- ever showed up in um, our results, but was key to where, where we started and where we ended up. Now, the reason I bring up Charlie right now is in about a month, he's on Survivor. So a little plug for Survivor. We'll see how far he makes it. Okay, that's good. I have someone to root for because I'm actually one of the people in America who still watches Survivor. So uh, that that's going to be, I have to root for an Ivy League cross-country guy. All right, Yep. so we've barely talked about Graham Blanks in this episode and we've only got a few minutes left to go, but I feel like we need to talk about him because he's coming yeah. off an incredible unbeaten cross-country season, an NCAA record in the 5,000. And after he ran that time, 1303 at BU um, in December, he made it clear he's going to be trying to make the Olympic team this summer. That's his goal. So how are you approaching this 2024 track season? And are you approaching it differently than 2023 when he winds up second at NCAAs? Yeah. I mean, first of all, don't be afraid if we go a little bit over, if I'm a little late for a staff meeting, I'm completely comfortable with that variable. Um, I don't know if Jason is, but that's his problem. Um, We're reffing the brand here. Um, Well, first of all, with that NCAA 5K, by the way, the NCAA cross meet was a far harder win than that run at the 5K. Um, It just, the the, the cross meet took far more out of him than that 5K run. Um, And um, just a couple things, right? One, um, as we look towards 24 with Graham, we're not going to change much indoors relative to what we've done in the past. We've delayed... um, some of um, the intensity of what we did last year, just because I thought he ran out of gas by the time we got to Albuquerque. That was probably his worst NCAA meet since he's been at Harvard. And there was a multitude of issues that compounded that, but we're trying to cycle a little bit differently. And that's probably the first and real indoor meet that we will be ready for. Um, but then we're going to take a little bit of downtime, get him off his feet for a little bit. We go to Houston for spring break. Um, I think that's the way we go. There is a chance we decide to go run the 10K the 10 um that following week and then take the downtime but we're going to let him to down cycle a little bit and then we're going to build the words of trials with the ncaa a top a top-notch opportunity en route to that um i will say um the fact that the trials is basically two weeks after the ncaa probably has eliminated the double from his vocabulary so that's one thing we're going to have to think about what direction we have to go to um but I, I just don't think it's probably responsible for him to run potentially a double at Heps to try to win the team title, then a double at the regional, and then a double at the national. That's a lot of um, a lot of mileage on the legs for a kid that needs to be at his best um, against some terrific talent. Um, and then the other piece, and you know, Graham's turned into a, a very good collegiate level closer, but that's the other piece we're going to need to work on a little bit. So watch what some of the pros are able to do over the last four to five hundred meters. That's something we're going to have to work on. 
Now, are you worried that the collegiate record that he holds and that you, I guess, hold as the coach will be no longer as of Friday afternoon? Always a possibility. I mean, listen, like Graham had a terrific run at BU on um, December 2nd. But if you watch the race, you know, listen, the one piece of advice I gave to Graham was when those rabbits drop off, you make sure you're not the next one in line. Like you sit back a little bit, let someone else take it. Kai Robinson did a hell of a lot of work to keep that thing on schedule. And Graham was the direct beneficiary of it. Graham gets stuck there and Kai's sitting in third. Completely different result. And that's something Graham was smart enough to recognize. Um, and so, yeah, it's entirely possible. But Graham, Graham is a junior, by the way, so we'll get another opportunity at it. Going into the trials, um, you know, this is a few months down the road, but, you know, to make that Olympic team, that's a really competitive event. You've got Grunfish, the American record holder, Woody Kincaid, Joe Klecker, potentially Paul Chalimo, two-time Olympic medalist, though he might be doing the marathon this year instead. But, you know, it's going to be really, really tough to make that team. Do you feel like the NCAA system is, like, the competition here is obviously pretty good as well. Like, do you think that's enough to kind of get him ready to race in a trial situation? Or would you want to see him step up and run against some pros and, and get that experience before the trials? I mean, there, there's some value in, in uh, looking at it both ways. I do think the NCAA is as competitive as it's ever been. Um, and I, I think to, I, I don't want to go, he, Graham's 21 years old. I don't want to move too far too fast, right? He's going to have a long pro career ahead of him. There's no sense of being a semi-pro when you still have collegiate competition that is top-notch, right? And like, use, you know, we just talked, use Kai Robinson a little bit. Like, Captain Samuels, obviously no joke. Um you know, uh, Bosley and Young, what they did in the 3K, Dave's guys were a little cooked after the NCAAs and still, I mean, what do you have? Um, Shoppy runs, what, 738? And Dave didn't even use them to win a national title. So it's like, there's just a, I, I know I'm missing someone, Parker Wolf, someone like that. I mean, the depth of high level competition right now is tremendous. Um, it's Graham's year, Graham's fall right now, but you have to be considerate of the fact that, um, you know, there's been a reshuffling of the cards and everyone has to re-earn what was previously earned last fall, um, Graham included. And we're going to find out who comes in top, on top during that process. But it is, uh, I, I do think the NCAA right now is absolutely cutthroat. And he has entered in the 1,000 meters at the Terrier Invitational on Friday. Why is he running that event and what do you think he can run? So he's not going to run. Um, he's not going to run. I entered him as a, a placeholder. If he felt like he needed a tune-up, um, we're going to keep things pretty vanilla right now. We're going to run the three K uh, next week at Scarlet White um, uh, against some good people. Um, probably take off the next weekend, put him on the end of the DMR if we're ready at BU the week before Heps. See if we can get the DMR through. We've got a couple good legs in front of him and some really good four hundred options. Um, so that's right now the plan before we go to Heps. Um, that could change depending on a variety of different things. Uh, you know, Graham got sick last week, um, had a little bit of a virus. And so if you ever want to see Graham get his ass kicked on a threshold, last Wednesday was the day to watch. Um, so it's, uh, um, but he, you know, he's breathing through a straw out there. And so we had to adjust some things, but um, no, we just need some time on his feet right now um, as we kind of build back into this thing. I'm sure the Princeton guys want to know what he's going to do at Haps. Last year, you guys did three five DMR, which is 
quite a lot. What about mile three, five DMR this year? I mean, I think anything's on the table. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're not going to provide any advanced information. I don't think we overthink things at HAPS, but, you know, one of the things we have to see is like how our squad develops through the course of the season. Um, how um, Princeton squad develops through the course of the season, uh, the women's side pen squad. Um, you know, I walked out of the restroom yesterday. I ran into Jace. He's like, what do you think about HEPs for like Ferris and Sophia, two of our freshmen? I'm like, I don't know. Like, let's just see how the HEPs, left, HEPs lists develop. One thing, I mean, for those of you who don't know what the HEPs is, it's the Ivy League championships. Used to have Army and Navy in it as well. And it's kind of the, for most of the athletes and most of the coaches, the obsession of the year. But what I was trying, I always like to think outside the box. Like, why, why does he have to run NCAA indoors? Like, couldn't he go all in and Habs? And then, I mean, last year he went all in and Habs and was terrible at NCAA at out, indoors and in altitude. Um, but since the Olympics are the goal, like, it's not like, well, I mean, you can't parse one variable, right? And what I mean by that is he did not go in all at Habs. Um, in the sense that like the three and the five didn't take much out of him. The mistake I made was that I let him run the DMR 15 minutes later because he asked. He and Ace were fired up. We were in a team hunt. We weren't confident that we were going to score in the DMR without him. And they wanted it. And it ended up backfiring a little bit when we dropped the baton in the four by eight. Um, we hold the baton. We win. Um, now we got a little bit of vengeance outdoors. I don't know if you remember that, Rojo. I don't remember that part. But yeah. um I think it was over by the intermediate hurdles. But anyways, I'm not going to talk shit because that always um, comes back to punish you, right? Um, but the other piece too, like we, we with Graham, the periodization was off indoors last year. I did a little bit too much with him in January. I thought we were a little defensive in training by the time February came around. So there's a little bit of a backslide. Um, Heps put another nail in his coffin and then altitude put the final one and like i know albuquerque was a fantastic venue i loved it joe franklin puts on great competitions um but taking a sea level person to compete at altitude is a little bit of russian roulette um and even taking an altitude person to altitude i was i got done with the 3k and i was walking home to my hotel when graham was done and i saw sam gilman just laying on the sidewalk like i was like trying to call 911. And like, this is a guy that's stepping down to compete at Albuquerque. Um, and so it's a little bit of Russian roulette at that level. Um, and so uh, that was, but that was the final straw in his coffin. He just wasn't competitive in some terrifically deep fields. And that's something we took a strong look at and changed outdoors. And I think we got right, um, mostly right. Uh, I do think he could run a little better at the 10K outdoors. But, um, and, but you learn. And, and I think that's the thing with learning, uh, with coaching and, and or being an athlete. You don't worry about being perfect. You worry about being better. And if you if you take that from a growth mindset standpoint, I, you're going to have a good career. So what do you think? And this is the conversation I never had with my boss, Nathan Taylor. I mean, we, we were winning track Ivy League championships every year. I think eight, 10 years I was there, or 13 in the 10 years I was there, and you then think never eight. win it. Come on, it comes up every that, week on the podcast. Yeah, seriously, that's about the billionth time you referenced that. But go ahead. Eight straight outdoors, 13 overall, but never winning in cross country. By the way, Alex, you've gone seven years without winning the men's cross country. I just need you to go three more because I greatly respect you. You've coached national champions. Once you make it 10 years with no cross country, despite the Harbor brand, then I'm going to feel people – I'm not going to let anyone give me shit. I'm like, hey, Gibby didn't do it either. Shut up. So I'm still <laughs> – 
So he's rooting against you. That's what he's saying, Gibby. Lit, I, I wouldn't blame him. I Some days after I walk away from Haps, I root against myself. Um, you know, it's like but, we've lost by three points three times the last four years, five years. And it's like we've done it every way possible. Losing shoes, being sick. It'll happen. Yeah. I just it's going to be a, a factor of luck, I guess. But you had you know, the three All-Americans. You totally raised the bar. You've done an amazing job. And to be honest, I think Jason Vigilante Princeton's done an amazing job, too, because when I was in the league, the men's team was was the top. Ivy League team was making the I've, the national meet like maybe every other year, really once every three or four years. And now you you guys are not only going, you know, you're top fifteen, top ten, top twenty. No, I mean, so you're doing good. But what do you think? This is this the, what is the ceiling for Harvard, and are we at it? Because I, I I never had that conversation with my boss, but I kind of thought we were at our ceiling in terms of a track and field program. But is this it? No, we're not even close. Um, listen, and, and part of it is part of it's luck, right? Like, um, but you know, when I started here, we were we weren't making a terrifically big investment in our, the distance side of the equation. Um, I uh, Acer's class, which is graduating this year, was still a class that we recruited, never having made the NCAA, right? And so now we're at a point where we've got we made it four years in a row. We say four out of five years, but it wasn't our fault. We got a chance to sit out. We would have made it that year too. Um, even though it was a fake NCAA because Harvard wasn't there. Um, so all the results that spring are to be wiped off the planet. Um, but we're like, reg- we are getting a different type of kid. And it's not even in terms of the numbers that are attached to their high school performances. It's like what they're invested in how they look at the world. Like last year, two of our incoming freshmen, Owen Bosley and Ference Kovach, were down to NAU and Harvard. Two very different choices. They're academically qualified to go to Harvard, but they definitely wanted to pursue the running piece at a high level. And so part of it is getting those type of kids in and going through the development piece. Part of it is attracting more distance runners in the recruiting process. That's something that Coach Soretsky is been willing to do now re- relative to when I started. Um, so we're going to start to find out what the ceiling is, but we haven't touched it. Um, and yeah, listen, I, and I, I think Vidge does a great job at Princeton. They're a, a worthy adversary. Um, they're not someone that's ever going to roll over in competition. And I, I you know, to quote, uh, to quote Jim Harbaugh, right? Um, iron sharpens iron. Um, and I think part of the reason why we've been able to do the things we do is you know, we've got Princeton in our backyard and we're competing hard with them. So, the, you know, but there's, there's only, if I'm going to push back on that sentiment, and obviously the coach's job is to be building, because when you're stagnating, which kind of was the way for us at the end there, it was, it was difficult. But there's only so many of those students out there in the world, I mean, th- that are academically qualified for Harvard. Now, given the fact they've thrown away the SAT and, you guys have Claudine Gay as the president. Maybe anybody can get in. That was kind of a joke, people. But um, no comment. You know, the, 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 like the, the very best people. Like to be honest, when I was recruiting, if they mentioned Harvard or Princeton in the recruiting process, I basically gave up on them because I'm like, okay, whether I want to admit it or not, we're recruiting status conscious kids. They're going to the Ivy League for a reason, and part of that's the name, the brand. And Harvard and yeah, Princeton have a bigger brain, bigger brand. Yep. You know, Yale doesn't invest in athletics, but. If they're really good, they're going to want to go to Stan- they're going to get the same academics, but go to Stanford for free. So it, it, it's like 
just like I couldn't get a kid, very rarely can I get a kid to turn down Harvard or Princeton to come to Cornell. I think you and Jason both have the problem of having a kid to turn down Stanford to come to you. Obviously, you're demonstrating a fixed mindset here, Rojo, so I'm a little disappointed in you, okay? But the, the world isn't immutable. The universe isn't immutable. It does change. And, you know, listen, nine times out of ten, I'm probably going to lose a kid to Stanford, right? And that's the way the world works. But, you know, maybe one times out of ten, I'm going to beat him. I beat him on Alex Fleury four years ago, and unfortunately, he's not able to run anymore due to cancer. Um, but that was a big win for us um, with, with Graham's recruiting class, Um and arguably the most talented guy in there. But the other piece too, and you have to fundamentally, fundamentally remember this in distance running, is like Graham was a really good high school runner, but he wasn't a superstar, right? Acer was a 415-915 kid. That's a two-time Ivy record holder. Like Matt Pereira was 913-413, and he ran 27-44. Karen Tuntavit was 413-913, and he's with Bowerman, and he was in... Ivy record holder, 3K and second fastest ever in the mile, 357 before super spikes, right? Um, I think only AWOD was faster. Um, so it's not necessarily about talent accumulation based on high school results. It's about figuring out the skill set needed to be good in college, trying to find the developmental backgrounds that'll work with what you want to do and trying to find fit, right? Trying to find fit. Now, I would prefer to go to NXN and take the top 10 guys every year and use that as my recruiting point or my recruiting plan. That's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we have a ceiling imposed on us because we have to look at things a little bit differently. Um, the other piece with Harvard is that we are the best academic brand in the world, bar none. And I, when I'm, I'm not saying we're the best university. I, I think you, I, I firmly believe you can get a good education anywhere. But if I go overseas, Harvard resonates in a way that other places don't. And so- oh, No, right. Um, you're making some great points. And the biggest change in the league between now when I was coaching is the number of internationals. The number, I don't know what your team is, Princeton, I think, is a half or a third of the stars for overseas. I assume you're the same. At Cornell, we only allow one international financial aid spot. So it's not even, a, the branding is 10 times bigger and the financial aid, so it's not a fair game. But Robert, we, we got to wrap talk, this up here because. He said, he said he could run over the meeting. Okay. I've got a couple questions here. No one's knocked at my so, door yet. No one's knocked at my door yet. So we're good. He didn't really want to, John. He didn't really want to go to this. Meeting, I just so. want to be. I just want to be cognizant know, of our guest needs because he's already been very generous. With because this these time. these are the convers. This is the conversation I had with him. Like well, Robert 15, just wants to know how, why didn't I succeed and win Heps Cross no. Country at Harvard? He's no, trying, no, no, no. Uh, Cornell. He's trying to. Get- I, I, I think Alex is fascinating. I think he's he's. I, I love the way your brain works, but you know it's a it's a good, epic. What do you call it, John? Going back and forth. Like I remember when. We were hanging out at World Cross Country in Jordan, and this is when, you know, Princeton was my big rivals, and they were getting the big-name recruits, but they weren't at the national level, and you were at the national level. And you said to me, why isn't Princeton better? Allegedly. You know, uh, uh, yeah. You might have even said, why isn't the Ivy League better? But you, like, you guys, like, you know, you were turning 920 guys into a team that was fifth in the country. We were getting the 905 guys, and nobody was going to NCAs. And I sort of defended the Ivy League for a little bit, even though Princeton was getting I was was the team I was, you know, trying to beat all the time. I said, well, I had two th- two theories. I'm sure you remember this because I asked you about it a year later and you remembered it. I said, look, one, the 905 we get is not the same as the 905 guy that that, that Dave Smith gets or some state school gets. The 905 guy is probably extremely driven and academics running. He's really all in. He, he's probably training harder at a higher level. So the time may be a, be a little bit misleading. 
But the, the, the other point was, I was like, we don't get a fifth year. And to me, that was huge. And then fast forward a few months, I bump into you at IC4A, meet outdoors. And you're like, I've been thinking about what you said. The fifth year is huge for us at William Mary. So have you benefited greatly from COVID? Because a lot of guys got an extra year. Is that, does that explain maybe why the Ivy League is doing better? Because we kind of have a built-in fifth year here? Um, it, it certainly has a bearing. I don't think it's mission critical. But there, there's a couple things here, right? One, I don't think being bright and running a time, like being successful is mutually exclusive, right? Like, again, it gets back to the Ivy League piece that I've learned. If they come down and the investment's worthwhile, they're as invested as any state school kid. Okay? Not all of them, but listen, you know, use Dave as an example. Dave's a good friend of mine. Like, Dave's got a 30-man roster. Not all 30 of his men are very good, right? But he does have some terrific kids. There are kids that do struggle to figure out the balance even when they want to, right? It's just where they come from. But I don't think being smart and being performing at a high level are mutually exclusive or necessarily even harder. Um, the other part though, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things you try not to think about is like, I, I can't use the fifth year to construct a roster, right? Um, I can't use the portal to fix a hole, right? Um, we've had one transfer since Jason's been here in, um, uh, in, in our men's and women's track and field history. So it's, yeah, it, it could be really difficult. I think Harvard gets like maybe 12 transfers a year and maybe athletics gets a shot at one of them. Um, but uh, it does affect things, but that's just, it's, it's, it's a workaround, right? And for me to say, hey, I can't do fifth years, I can't do portal, also ignores the massive strengths that Harvard does, right? And the fact that I can go into anyone's living room and no one asks about the utility of the brand, right? The academic pedigree. And so I want to make sure that like, yeah, there's certain things I, we can't do, but that doesn't make us a victim in any capacity. Um, now that said, I, you know, I, I talked to Dave Smith after the NCAA meet, we were going back and forth and he, he told me this fact. I think if you look at the top hundred this year at the NCAA, there are only eight American kids in the top hundred that were in their first three years in college. And so I think that's a pretty interesting variable to think about and consider when we think about what NCAA success looks like right now. And was that counting Graham Blanks, who was in his third year of college, but his fourth year since high school? No, I, I think I think Rosa, who was 47th for us, and Blanks were out of the equation because of the gap, I do believe. Yeah. As, as well they should be. By, by, by the way, I don't know if you were at Harvard then. Someone who turned down Harvard to go run for Oklahoma State done pretty well. Who is John, that? Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, what's your name? There's face? someone that... Yeah, um, Sinclair. Sinclair Johnson. Yeah, she I turned down to Harvard. Harvard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it does happen. It's only because I wasn't there. I would have out-recruited Dave's ass seven days of the week, twice on Sunday. <laughs> okay, and I, I don't think people realize like how good your recruits are. I mean, you guys have you have two guys on the team right now, both from overseas, that were sub-four milers in high school. We have, Kovacs. We have one. Well, the, well, the other guy, that's what I was going to get to. So this other guy, Vivian Hines, 338 in high school, runs 339 his freshman year, and you already talked about it. You said, look, there's an adjustment period. We try to teach the guys that. But it sounds like he's already quit the team. This kind of reminds me of Adam Cotton from – my my era, Adam was a three uh, three forty one guy running London Diamond League meets before he showed up at Harvard. Never did anything. Harvard did a fifth year in New Mexico. Never did anything there. So, 
I, I did laugh because when I was on that crazy thread, I guess unorthodox training matches, the second post was someone posting from the name Yale is better. These Ivy League guys are just obsessed with each other. And they said, they were, they were when, when the person talked about your training made up philosophy, someone says, well, maybe that'll explain why they underperform compared to the quality of the athletes they tend to recruit. So that was the same perception that <laughs> 15 years ago, you know, you and I had about the Princeton program. Yeah. And now people are leveling at you. And I don't really think it's fair. Like, I think you guys, Jason, are, are doing uh, both Jasons, Vigilani and um, Sorensky are doing amazing jobs. So uh, I, I defend you guys, but not everyone's going to be a star like the training. And that was one thing I think was hard for me as a coach was like, okay, like, like how much do you bend to someone? Like, th this Vivian Hines guy is, was a superstar. I'm sure you'd want him on the team, but he's not, right? Is no, no, no. He's yeah, he's still at Harvard, um, which is which is great. You're pursuing the degree, set up the rest of your life, and you know, Vivian and I, um, you know, I personally enjoyed my conversation with Vivian. He probably enjoyed some of like his conversations with me, but we just we weren't a good fit. I think Vivian recognized that and wanted something different, and so he's training on his own. Um, he's back with his uh, club coach in Luxembourg, and so wish him best of luck. Um, We've got some pretty good ones in house, um, and um, you know, it, it, but that gets to. I mean, that gets to the college, the collegiate model in general. Um, it's magnified here because in a given year, I'm going to get three or four distance kids. So if one or two don't work out, you know, then we're we're dropping our ceiling a little bit. And by workout means understand the academic and athletic balance, can manage the social life, can adapt to the training, can do all that stuff. Um, you know, whereas, and this is cynical a little bit, but, you know, William and Mary, I was bringing in eight guys that could run some of them at differing levels. And so if, if we, if we missed on a couple kids that were, you know, perhaps nine minutes or eight fifty out of high school, no one noticed because I've got a nine, 10 kid that's put in three or four years of work that will gladly step into that role and has figured it out. Um, and listen, the difference between an eight fifty five kid in high school and a nine, 10 kid in high school is one developmental step. Right. One developmental step. And so that's why, you know, it's like, don't get too wrapped up in top level high school performances, focus on the personality, right? Who, who's got it figured out, who's willing to go through the grind that distance running could be at times, particularly in the winter in Boston, who really wants to get this done? Who's showing up with a little bit of a passion. All right. Well, Gibby, thank you for joining us today and talking about all this stuff. Um, Again, we appreciate you making time for us, your schedule. I'm really excited to see how the rest of the season plays out uh, for Graham Blanks. We didn't even talk about the other NCAA champion on your roster, Maya Ramston, but you've done a great job with her as well. So, thank you know, thanks for the time, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you in a track very soon. Yeah, see you in a real soon, and Rojo, look forward to sparring you with, with you soon, okay? Yeah, yeah. All right, you guys take care. You did it again. You listened to the end of our full podcast. If an hour and a half of Let's Run a week isn't enough for you, you got to be a Supporters Club member. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. You'll get a second podcast every week. We need to do the math. I would say that one probably clocks in at, it's going to say an hour, maybe 45 minutes on average. Plus you get daily podcasts from World's Olympics, that sort of stuff. Insider access, savings and running products. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. You want a better running shoe? You got to check out the Let's Run.com Better Running Shoe site, where we combine data science and running shoe reviews from the most dedicated runners on the planet. That's you. 
Let's run Visitor Schweiss 14. He actually checked out the number two rated shoe on here. The A6 Super Blast. A6 is paying us nothing for this. But Schweiss 14, trusted reviews, bought the shoe, and here's what he says. This is probably the best overall daily trainer I've ever run in. I typically don't run an Asics, but giving the outstanding reviews and LRC better shoes, I decided to give them a try. They are worth every penny and effortlessly take 15 seconds off each mile. He continues on. The last shoe I felt this strongly about and coincidentally selected because of overwhelmingly positive reviews on the old LRC shoe review site was the Adidas Boston 8. While a completely different type of shoe, it brings back the same joy and effortless propulsion I fondly recall from that old Boston. Good job, Asics. Good job, LRC Better Shoes. So find a better shoe. The number one shoe may not be for you, but you can find the most durable shoe, the most comfortable shoe. You can see how your shoe compares to other shoes. Let's run.com slash shoes or betterrunningshoes.com.